You know, Russ, we called last week's uh, episode sexually promiscuous in the end, thinking, you know, thinking we'd get all these like a million downloads or something like that. But uh, I don't know. I think people are kind of staying away from the sax. I don't know what that's all about. They might be scared. <laughs> you think? They might not want to click on that title when there's anyone else around. Yeah, or maybe it was just too close to, you know, COVID or something. I don't know. It kind of getting me the nervous. Be. There yeah. could be there could be a lot of sexless people out there now, though, you know. There, there's another good name for an episode in the future. We could call one of our episodes like sexless people. Sexless or, whisper or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that reminds me. I heard an album this week um, by a band that old that you wouldn't have thought would be Good, but it actually is. Do you remember Tears for Fears from the 80s? I do. Yeah, in fact, we, we heard uh, on a recent jazz album, actually it was from last year somewhere, we heard uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I think somebody had done that. Mm. But they have a new album out. This is the first uh, their first album in like 18 years or some crazy thing like that. And it's actually really good. Well, you know, it's kind of fairly sophisticated pop as their things are. And they always have these kind of... um. Their their lyrics are all based on some kind of psychological kind of system, and it's just really interesting. I liked it. Anyway, wow. anyone looking for a an adult pop album? <laughs> it must be more like Jerry. Jerry Tears for Fears, the tipping now. point. I enjoyed it. Oh. Yeah, brought me. Didn't bring me back to college. It's actually kind of because th- those old albums, um, they use all those synths, and it really does kind of put those albums squarely in the 1980s. But uh, this one. I think they've they're using a lot of acoustic uh, instruments, and I think that's always wise because that doesn't get old. You just kind of you know they'll, that'll still be valid twenty years. Now. Although I still like those old albums, but then again, I grew up then, so well, that sounds interesting. Good. Brings yeah. me back to junior high school or something like that. Oh, junior mm. high! You're younger than me, aren't you? I was in uh, college for that. Yeah. Anyway, mm. well, so what do we have? What's the name of our podcast? This I is adult music. <laughs> Not geriatric music. Not yet. Adult Not music. Not yet. Coming soon. It's like the Beach Boys, right? They're still the Beach Boys. That's right. They should change the name to the Beach Geezers. <laughs> <laughs> the Beach Geezers. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And <laughs> that doesn't include us, of course, but no. it's you, listener. That's the listeners, right? And each week we'll bring you, on average... Six recordings, be three in the classical arena, three jazz releases. Sometimes we cross over into other genres or have something in between. Yeah, uh, I think I'm going to be doing that soon, in fact. I've got kind okay. of an interesting uh, jazz release I want to talk about. Yeah. And um, that, that kind of crosses over into classical a little bit. Yeah, we're not tightly bound by our definitions. Uh, we can be inspired from other things. Yeah, one day we might do uh, 10 albums each and do like an eight-hour marathon episode. You never know. I can't imagine doing that. <laughs> this is hard enough as it is. Hard, yeah. <laughs> last, well, last week was uh, our sax-themed episode, and uh, this week we're uh, going to be brassy. Well, we're not just going to be brassy. We're going to be, uh, <laughs> shall we say, horny, aren't we? Horny, yeah. Yeah. The horn. In a, a brassy way. Yeah. Horny in a brassy way. Yeah. 
Uh, so that's going to be the theme of this episode. Bra- brassy would be a good name for an episode with all brass, or like, yeah, you know, but uh, different kinds of brass. Yeah. So mainly in the, the trumpet realm this week with some oddball uh, trumpet kind of things going on here too. Yeah, there are a lot of oddball, tr- including in one in classical too. I managed yeah. to get one in there. So that's what you got to look forward to. And uh, if you're wondering what the music we're talking about is, if you just clicked on us and you don't know how to follow what we're doing, if you're not a regular listener yet, you'll see in the episode description links to Spotify on Apple Music for everything we'll discuss. Uh, Also, at the top of the podcast description for the episode, there's a link to the full playlist Uh, You can get all the music in one place. Uh, This week, everything's available on streaming, and that will be on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. You can listen to everything in CD quality, and uh, you can also listen to the podcast there. If you want, uh, just look us up at Adult Music Podcast. Uh, And if you can't see that description or any of the links on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, jump over to our host site on Podbean, and all the episode links are easy to follow there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. If you take just a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. And then we get more listeners and that makes us happy. Also, now you can find us on Facebook. Uh, We've got a page going there. You can leave a message or comment there as well. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. We will write back. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, we can guarantee we'll write back because we hardly get any messages. So we, we respond to all of them. Well, yeah, I shouldn't say I'll definitely moment. write back because we do get some really weird ones. Uh, I guess oh, once you we? put your email address yeah. out there online. Oh, you get some ad, you yeah, get a lot of ad ones. That you weird get, ones. That like junk yeah. mail and stuff. Yeah. All right. So anything else going on here? Well, I don't know. Anyway, here at the uh, Oasis that is adult music, let's uh, just jump in to this week's classical releases. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right, here we go. We, we, I, li- I generally like to... Now, next week, by the way, I'm not going to have a Baroque recording. I know oh. this, but, so, but I, I generally like to start with Baroque because I think that's a good way to start your day. And I'm going to recommend that listeners do that. Um, it's, it's, Baroque music just feels so good, like early in the morning. Anyway, this is a vocal one um, by a um, soprano, French soprano, and I've got two pronunciations for her name. We've actually already talked about her on the on a previous uh, podcast Tonight's, early in 2021. Tonight's going to be really rough on uh, pronunciation. It certainly is. <laughs> I'm a little bit, I'm looking ahead we, at the, my notes and thinking, uh, help yeah. us. <laughs> we, we really should have thought ahead, you know, when we started this podcast as to... You know, yeah. this is we don't have to write these names. We actually now have to say them, and this yeah. is a bit of a problem. Okay, so anyway, our our composer's our soprano's uh, name here. I've heard pronounced two ways. It's either Sabine Devier or Sabine Deviel. Now, I'm going to opt for Deviel because I think the H is kind of at, at the end. The H E is replacing the double L E which would be pronounced Deviel. So I'm just going to take a shot in the dark there and say that's how you pronounce it. All right. Anyway, I wish I did know the the way she would want it pronounced because I think she's she's one of my favorite sopranos along with uh, Marianne Crebassa, who we talked about about two weeks or three weeks ago. All right, but this is, this is a pretty straightforward program of music by Bach and Handel. 
And um, so soprano Sabine Deviel. Uh, pi- uh, ensemble is uh, Pygmalion, conducted by Raphael Pichon. And this is on the Erato label. Did you know Erato, by the way, is one of the uh, nine muses? She's the muse of. It's kind of easy. This is an easy mnemonic for this because Erato and Erotic. Okay, so she's the muse of erotic poetry oh. in the ancient Greek world. I think I did learn go. that once. But um, yeah, it's I just actually a, can... a, another good point showing how music connects to all the rest of culture. Right. There are a lot of um, classical record labels that are named after mu- individual muses, by the way. Hmm. Anyway, um, I uh, well, I'll get to why I picked this particular... Well, I picked it because she's on it, but... Um, and I wanted to hear it, but uh, I especially wanted to talk about this one because of the program, which is really interesting. Um, okay, it's all Bach and Handel, and you would think, oh, okay. But uh, this turns out to be pretty intriguing, I thought. Okay, we start out with a sacred song. There's a little little uh, appetizer here before we get to the first cantata. We get a sacred song by Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, Mein Jesu, was vor Sielenweh. Um, <laughs> I don't speak German at all. Um, this is uh, BWV 487, verses 1 and 3. So we cut, I think they cut one um, verse out. Um, this, okay, first of all, there's a gorgeous vocal on this. Um, one, of the, one of the things about this that struck me right away is how well recorded um, the entire ensemble is Anda Deviel's voice. Uh, she sounds fantastic. Sopranos are really hard to capture. I've been an audio engineer in the past, and they, they tend to really, when they hit these really high notes, they tend to really pin the, your meters. But uh, she's been captured extremely well here, and she does get a few high notes off during the program. So I really enjoyed this, and there's a there's a lute accompaniment to this, and it's really just mm. wonderful. I liked it a lot. The voice is well focused with an appealing tone, um, and nice phrasing, and a very clear recording. I like the way the lute is clearly audible and followable throughout, even underneath, even while uh, Daviella is singing. Uh, her voice matches well with it, and. Um, we're recording this now in um, Lent. It's Lent has started in the Catholic Church, the lead up to Easter. Um, this is we're recording on the first Sunday of Lent, actually, here in Japan, uh, where, where they don't celebrate Lent. <laughs> and, uh, well, Catholics do. There are very few of them, though. Um, we're, we're kind of sandwiched in between, like you know, Korea and the Philippines, where there are a lot of well, there are a lot of Catholics in the Philippines, and in Korea there are a lot of Christians. But and here we are in Japan, where there aren't much of either. Anyway, this track deals with Jesus' passion, and so it's pretty appropriate for the season. Uh, in fact, a lot of these are going to be sort of religious themes about um, transgression and forgiveness and nice things like that. It's a really, uh, dare I say, a healing program, spiritually healing, as we'll find soon enough. Second track, Bach, Sinfonia to the Gantara, Wir müssen durch viel Trübsal. BWV 146. This is an instrumental. Um, and I think it's there to um, separate um, the voice in the t- from in the first track to the voice in the cantata, which is coming up. Also, Pygmalion, the ensemble, are part are the stars here too. They're sort of equal stars with Deviella. So I think they wanted their moment in the sun too. And uh, they deserve it because they're pretty fantastic. Um this is a familiar Bach melody in this piece. Um, 
Symphonia to this Cantata, BWV146, I never realized that this was... I never heard the Cantata version of this before, because I know this theme as the opening movement of uh, Keyboard Concerto Number no. 1 in D minor, BWV1052. Right. Right. That's where I know um, from, too. Yeah, he... Um, he lifted this from his earlier cantata using the keyboard concerto, um, which is which often happens in Bach. Um, re- research in the '80s really started finding this out, and it's it, people were really disappointed because they wanted Bach to be one of those um, total originals like Beethoven was, you know. But uh, it's he, a, was a just, he was a recycler. He was a recycler, but he was yeah, he was he was. I think a bigger super genius than Beethoven was, mm. and um, but the thing is that was just what was done in his age. Um, Vivaldi, being the all-time recycler, he um, <laughs> he had yeah. sa- several of the same works republished by people in different countries so that he could earn several salaries off it. A practice that I approve of personally, because <laughs> <laughs> I would do it if I could. Maybe that's the Italian in me talking. I don't know. I like the organ in this uh, one particular here. It's. Yeah. Uh, comes through very clearly in the arrangement and um yeah it's good yeah. to hear this version of it it's very yeah i enjoy too. the the old style organ on this mm. track it's kind of it's like an old one uh gorgeous sound the rhythm is pinpoint perfect <laughs> this on this um yeah it's got motion yeah. but it's not too fast it's yeah. uh, just locks in nicely right excellent blend on the ensemble and I like the way the very neatly playing ensemble crash into the dissonant chord right before the keyboard cadenza in the middle of the track. It's it's I, I like it when like you're, you're just kind of heading somewhere and suddenly this is dissonance and it all just goes and just sort of um mm. they they take that exceptionally well. It's a, it's a really nice moment uh, right right around the center, the middle. So you can I'm, I'm sure you'll hear it. <laughs> it's pretty noticeable. Uh, there's another pretty uh, there's a pretty psychedelic. Uh, uh, dissonant chord near the end of the uh, this movement, um, and the dissonance is on the ending. It's it's really nice. I liked it too, the way they take it there. All right, next we get to the reason I wanted to hear this recording because of this cantata. Mein Herz schwimmt im Blut. My my uh, my heart Herz I think swims in blood. Okay, BWV. 199. This is one of my favorite Bach cantatas, and um, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a miraculous composition. It's basically about um, the uh, the singer at the beginning is like this person who has sinned and they're feeling terrible about it, and then they turn to God and they plead with God for forgiveness, and they get that forgiveness, and it ends in joy. All right, now the um, the lyrics are a bit um, sort of. Um, uh, extreme, shall we say? But the music kind of follows that from the darkness to the light, like perfectly, and it's almost like it's giving you the experience of going from this dark place to something lighter and more joyful. And I just feel like it's it, it almost transforms the listener. And I really wonder what this must have been like for people alive at the time because they didn't have the uh, the ear pollution that we have today. Yeah, you know, when we hear say. Um, an augmented fourth. I mean, we really don't. We just think it's cool, you know. <laughs> but you know, like as you can hear in our uh, our adult music theme. But uh, back in uh, box day, it would have been a horrifying sound. So <laughs> these these sounds sort of um, it wasn't really considered musical. But we uh, so if you if you if you think about that about how much more 
sensitive people's ear to it. What counted as music to people back in that day before there was machine, the machinery and engines and things like that. If you think about it, the, um, the loudest song you ever could have, well, I don't know about the loudest, unless there was a war and you heard cannons, which are very, very loud. Uh, the loudest sound you would hear is just really, um, what animals, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Cows. You know, maybe a lion or something. Well, you wouldn't even hear a lion unless you were in Africa. So it'd be too late. That'd be the yeah. last thing you heard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, you wouldn't be able to go back and tell people about it anyway. Okay. Uh, the singer really beats herself up in the beginning of this. Okay. Um, I feel like also this is a great, uh, you know, aside from the, uh, the way the singer really beats herself up and her remorse at the, in the first, um, recitative and, um, aria, um, this is a theme we really need to absorb today, um, in this time of eternal condemnation on the internet, (laughs) you know? You, you just get <laughs> damned and you just got to stay there forever. And I really think this is a work that uh, people need to hear and just so they get it, what, what uh, forgiveness is all about. It's a work I love. And um, let me talk about it here. Um, track three. Number one is the recitative, Mein Herz schwimmt im Blut. Uh, the singer sings of her disgust and sense of hopelessness at feeling irredeemably separated from God by her sins. Uh, textually, it's very full on, and if this were a modern work, uh, this would be the end of the uh, work right here because that's where we are on the internet. We just have to stay like that forever. But luckily, we have uh, the forgiveness of the divine, um, so we get to track number two, an aria, Stumme Seufze Stille Klagen. So the stage is set, and we hear her emotions about her lowly state. This is what Baroque arias are all about. The action stops and you sing about your emotions. Usually they're two contrasting emotions. Um, here we hear um, this particular performance is taken slowly and heavily by the ensemble, I guess, to get a sense of that uh, heaviness of the soul in this state. Um, it's an appropriate approach, um, but the melodic vocal material is very appealing, and I think it sounds nicer at a faster, a slightly faster pace. That's okay, though. We have a great singer here. Diviella's voice is light and appealing. The slow speed heightens the pathos and sorrow. Um, the phrases are all beautifully shaped by the ensemble, and uh, there's a great dissonance again on the word geboost. It's harshly taken, and satisfyingly so. This is a very long lament at eight minutes, you know, so if you're wallowing in sorrow during this, Stick with it because good stuff is coming up. We've been hearing a lot of weeping downward figures up to this point, so the strings will go like, mm, mm. that's kind of like a, a musical symbol of, of weeping, crying, that kind of thing, that kind of sadness. This turns around in the next recitative, which is called Doch Gott muss mir genetic sein. Um, I should have did a translation of this. God must... Um, hear me or forgive me. I don't know what genetic is. Okay. Here the penitent realizes that God must have mercy on her. So she asks for mercy with the music brightening with her hope at redemption. Now, if you're listening to this um, and you're not really a big music listener, you want to listen to how the music lightens and brightens as the cantata goes on. It's almost like it's, it's giving you the experience of this singer. Then they're very beautiful. Um, number four, aria, tief gebucht und voller Roya. This is the centerpiece of the cantata and my personal favorite. 
uh, in it where the balance between remorse and happiness is achieved. It's also another very long one. The singer says to God, she acknowledges her guilt and says she's remorseful, but asks for God's patience. Um, I find this um, very moving. Davielle sings it clearly and with feeling. And I can't personally, I've heard obviously older recordings of this. And for me, I can't shake the beauty of Emma Kirkby's version throughout. I really love that one. She had such an angelic voice, and you were hoping for her forgiveness too, because she just sounded so great. Um, uh, Dawn Upshaw's version moved me as well, and this one does too. But uh, it's just a newer one, and I think I have to take on this new voice, because the other ones are so familiar to me. Um, But at the moment, I kind of am favoring those. I'm going to have to put this on a lot more. This particular version is so clean in recording and performance that it invites repeated listening. Um, the last line of the text before it repeats, Habe doch geduld mich mir, which means have patience with me, is very movingly sung by Daviela, a gorgeous melody throughout that sticks with you. Okay, the tables are turned. God has heard her prayer, and we have the recitative Auf dieser Schmerzenvreu. Uh, this very brief recitative 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 see i don't even know how to say these words uh because i know recitativo in italian so it's, it sounds like an artificial english word telegraphs coming words of comfort which we hear in the chorale on the next track which is called ich dein betreutes kind my your penitent child the penitent casts her sins into Jesus' wounds, as she says, where sal- salvation comes from. There's more comfort where salvation came from when he was uh, crucified. There's more confidence in the vocal line here. So she's kind of added this confidence to her voice to show, you know, this is part of her interpretation that the, uh, you know, the vocalist has faith in what's going to happen to her. It sounds rather carefully constructed as though the vocalist doesn't want to err. The accompaniment, on the other hand, is very busy. Now, this is a chorale. Um, these are the, these are usually harmonies, and they're they're very simple to sing because they're supposed to be sung in church by the congregation who aren't professional singers. So, this is not the most exciting aria, but it's still really beautiful because of all the filigree work from the orchestra. Uh, number seven, recited. This is track nine. Uh, recitative, recitative. Uh, ich Lege mich in diese Wunden. This soothing recitative features the vocalist finding a resting place in faith. Her voice has notably noticeably lightened here. And then we get to number eight, the final aria. Wie freudig ist mein Herz. How joyful is my heart. Here we get sheer happiness as the vocalist sings at how her joyful her heart is at reconciliation with God and really with herself. Beautifully taken here. And the ensemble communicates joy in their high-stepping rhythm and individual melodic lines as well. This is a satisfying performance, even if I can't get my favorite ones out of my ear. I suspect that this will become one of my favorite performances as I hear it more. Uh, This might be the best recorded version of this that I've heard. And that combined with the performance might win the day. And I love the way in this piece that Bach's music shadows the mood of the words as they start in despair and weeping and slowly lift to hope and then to joy of the last aria. It almost physically lifts the listener out of any despair he or she might be feeling. So give that this particular work a listen. And uh, I wish I could kind of sort of um, hack the internet and make everybody listen to this. But it's in German, so most of them wouldn't understand it anyway. <laughs> I could put the, put the translation up, you know. 
they need this. Anyway, we move on after this very moving um, uh, cantata. We get to Handel finally, and this is um, we get two um, uh, sections of the oratorio, Brock's Passion. Um, I actually looked this up and didn't write anything about it, but it's a pa- it's a passion work, so it's for Easter. And uh, in the first movement, um, the singer is Mary, Jesus's mother, and her. Uh, uh, res, res, I always say recitative here. Ach Gott, ach Gott, mein Sohn wird fortgeschleppt. This is a passion narrative, and Mary plays a big role in it, which is unusual. Uh, she's usually not cast in... She's not in any of the Bach passions, I don't think. But here she laments her son being taken to be crucified and all the good work he's done. After all the good work he's done. And then we get a duet with, uh, we have another voice here, Stefan de Goot, uh, baritone. So we have a soprano and baritone. Solo mein Kind, mein Leben sterben, and Ja, ich sterbe dir so gut. So it's two different arias sung at the same time. And this is a duet between Maria and Jesus. I don't think I've ever heard these <laughs> Yeah, I don't. Because arias are usually before. between lovers, right? And uh, mm-hmm. here it's uh, a mother and her. Her her son, who happens to be God. (laughs) This is a duet between Mary and Jesus, not often heard. Uh, Mary asks, must you die? And Jesus assures her, it is for your good in heaven. Uh, Here we find out what a great recording this is, because baritone Stefan de Gutz sounds fantastically clear as well. How do they do this? Great engineering, I thought. Um, All the detail of Handel's orchestration is clearly heard. And uh, I'm going to have to give the engineer credit here. I didn't write his name down. I should get into this habit. All right. Producer Aline Blondieu, recording engineer Hughes Deschaux. Good work, people. <laughs> it's a good okay. recording for sure. It is It is a good recording. All right, next. We've had all sort of religious works so far, Christian works. And then we get, um, after hearing Mary, we hear... Um, Segments of the opera Giulio Cesare in Egitto by hey, Handel. Cleopatra. Yeah. Cleopatra, who's really very different from Mary, <laughs> isn't she? A bit. <laughs> <laughs> what a change. But oddly, this um the the kind of trajectory she's on is sort of on the same one that Mary is in the earlier aria. So this sort of mirrors the cantata that the, by Bach that we heard earlier. The darkness to light. Mm-hmm. We're kind of getting a similar trajectory here, with these the way these um, snippets are in, assembled. Okay, this one's also in Italian, and uh, I have a CD of this. And in the booklet note, they've put the Italian translations in a separate part of the booklet, so I had to go <laughs> searching for it. It's like what they didn't put the Italian text up, but they did. They're in the booklet. You just have to leaf to the end to find it. Okay, um, this is from Act 2, Scene 8, uh, number 28, accompanied rec- recitative. I'm going to say recitative. I don't like this recitative nonsense. Okay, que sento, oh Dio. <laughs> this, could, this could be the name of several hundred <laughs> Italian arias. Que sento, what do I hear? Oh Dio, oh God. <laughs> Quite a change of character here as we get a dramatic beginning. Cleopatra, uh, singing in Italian, shows both defiance and tenderness. At what, we don't know yet. We find out in the aria that's coming up. Although if we heard the whole opera, we would know. Se pietà di me non senti, if you don't feel pity for me. Um, 
Cleopatra's lament, Arya is a lament for her coming death. At the hands of who? Julius Caesar was long dead by the time she was killed because she was hanging with Mark Antony and Augustus's um, forces um, killed her. I, I, um, I wish I'd, I don't know this opera, so I'm going to have to listen to it one day. I don't know. Anyway, her aria is a lament for her coming death, a good opportunity for the suffering soprano to win the hearts of the audience, and Devielle does so here, okay? You're just kind of pouring your heart out to the audience. They love you. Fantastic, gently floated high note right at the end. Really gorgeous performance. Make sure you hear that high note. It's so nice. It's really soft, too. All right, back to Brock's Passion um, by Handel. The aria here, Ich start mein Herz und Blut. Um, we get an aria sung by the personification of the Gläubige Seele, or Faithful Soul. Okay, the title means, Hear My Heart and Blood Freeze. And we get a musical representation of that in the stop and start quality of the music, as though it's frozen in its tracks. Okay, it's kind of, it can't move forward because of the coldness of what she sees. And what she sees is the audacity of humanity to nail the Son of God to a cross. Okay, so she's looking on this personification of the faithful soul. Um, a big thing in the Baroque era, by the way, you had all these sort of representative um, characters that represented certain elements of the soul and things like that. Next we get a recitative, O Anblick, O Entsetzliches Gesicht, also sung by the Gläubige Seele. This is a narration of the soul as she watches Jesus be tortured by his captors. It's supposed to be shocking and ferocious because there's a lot of um, uh, really kind of horrible descriptions of what's happening to Jesus as seen from afar. But the musical language available to Baroque era composers isn't going to put that across to contemporary ears. It all seems very soft to us. So you have to do some willful forgetting of what came in the 300 years that followed. Okay, so f pretend you never heard a jet engine before. <laughs> you'll, get, you'll be that much closer. Or even a railroad engine. A lawnmower. <laughs> a lawnmower. <laughs> Just put all those things out of your head. The world was quiet then. You know, at least every day. The non-war world was. There were mm -hmm. a lot of wars back then. Okay, next we have track 17. Again, going back to the opera Giulio Cesare in Egitto. Act 3, scene 3. This is Cleopatra again. Piangerò la sorte mia. I, um cry i will cry for my fate um and it's an interesting transition the first words she sings are i cry for my fate so cruel so wicked it's a lovely lament movingly taken by daviella as is everything on this album the middle section is an angry promise okay you always like that contrast in a baroque era aria and the the music really picks up and gets stormy as cleopatra promises that her ghost will hover around the Tyrant, who's unidentified, and I guess it's Julius Caesar. This section ends with a spectacularly taken high note, beautifully captured by the recording. Th th these are hard to do. Again, a good uh, a nod to the engineer here. Make sure you hear it. This one, too. She goes back for an even more moving and softly taken pass at the Piangero section, and then it, we end. Some more Handel follows from the oratorio. Il trionfo del tempo e del disinganno. And this is Italian as well. Um, there's an accompanied recitative, pure, 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 geez, pure del cello intelligenze eterne. Here, the singer is a personification of beauty. 
Okay, so she's not Aphrodite, she's beauty. Uh, these figurative characters were big in Baroque opera, remember. The recitative comes at the end of the oratorio, so this is the end, and beauty is asking heaven to help her match her acts with her will. Okay, <laughs> aren't we all asking for that? <laughs> anyway, it's, it's pretty universal even today, so this is why classical music lives on. Okay, track 19, the aria Tu del Ciel Ministro Eletto. There's a clarification of what she means here as she sings, You will no longer see faithless yearning or vain passion in my heart. And she asks that the minister of heaven, who I guess is some angel, um, take her new heart to God. In a way, it echoes the end of the Bach cantata we heard earlier. And I guess this whole selection of recitatives and arias acts as a mirror to the trajectory of that great work. This particular aria is spare in orchestration and touching in its vocal performance. The tenderness of the ensemble playing in the outer section pulls the ear and heart in. Beautiful and gorgeously taken, quiet ending. Then we end the recording with another Bach cantata, Jauchset Gott in Allen Landen, BWV 51. And this is just a joyful, happy work right from the beginning. Uh, it starts with an aria, Jauchset Gott in Allen Landen. It has fanfares. There's a trumpet. And whenever you're going to hear a trumpet in uh, the Baroque area, it's going to be some kind of fanfare or happiness. The joy moves on to the heavily melismatic vocal. And boy, is it palpable. This raised my spirits high. Uh, the I think it's that the entire program really has built up to this point. It's a really brilliantly um, conceived and executed program. Um, it really does bring the listeners' um, uh, spirits up. And I encourage everybody to hear this, especially in these rather uh, dark days that we're living through. Um, the, uh, the text encourages listeners to exalt God. In fact, the volume of the ensemble threatens to cover the vocal. But we've got some good engineering here, as I said, and that doesn't happen. You can hear Deviella being stretched in certain parts, but she comes through. This sounds like a really tough um, aria to sing. Um, number two is a recitative. Wir beten zu dem Tempel an. A confident statement on the blessings we receive from God and the modest praise we give that pleases him. Number three is the Aria Hochster Mach Deine Gute, a plea to God to renew his goodness to us each morning. It's got a nice rocking triplet quality. Rocking meaning like like a rocking a cradle, not like rock and roll rocking. <laughs> okay. Sometimes I got to be careful with these words, huh? A triplet quality to the accompaniment as though soothing the singer's soul as she sings the plea. And this is an, another example of what I mean by like box music kind of um, sort of adding extra uh, meaning to what's being sung. So the singer singing this plea, please renew my soul. And then the, that sort of rocking back and forth sort of um, uh, rhythm kind of has the idea that uh, she's in God's hands and being well taken care of. Um, it's really beautiful. I, these, these things sort of touch me in music when you hear them. Because if someone were to say, to give you that image, like I just did, you would say, ugh. <laughs> you know, it's kind of how, uh, you know, it's a little, little uh, I can't think of the word now, but a little over the top, let's say. Mm. But when you hear it musically, it uh, it really hits its mark, and it's really beautiful. There's a really pretty harp melody included with the continuo that renders the accompaniment more touching. Okay, number four, this is track 23, is the chorale Sein Loben Preis mit Eren. These are usually sung by a chorus, and I always think they sound really odd when they're sung by a single voice. Um, 
It's a basic square melody meant for congregations and lots of filigree in the accompaniment. So the um, ensemble shines here. Um, the text exhorts the listener to praise God so that his mercy towards us will increase, which is pretty much what this entire joyous cantata is about. And number five, the finale and Alleluia. We go directly into this without a pause. The trumpet fanfare is back as the soloist sings Alleluia. No one could set an Alleluia like Bach, except maybe Handel. <laughs> but uh, we, we know his Alleluia from the end of the Messiah. Um, and this, this is a really beautiful example. This is such a good program on top of being well-performed by the well-matched vocalist and ensemble. Beautifully recorded. It just scores top scores in like every category uh vocalists tend to change ensembles from album to album but this was so good it makes me hope that uh these two the you know that daviel and uh, pygmalion will get together again to repeat this magic also i want to mention this is um all these texts are most of them are you know religious works based on christianity bach being <laughs> probably the most christian of all composers um but don't let that deter you if you don't happen to be a christian music um as we know transcends um every everything and really brings us closer to the divine or whatever you want to think about it as so this will transport you as well okay no belief necessary but you might be a believer afterwards just because it's so good Highly, highly recommended. For yeah, me, I like anyway. this one uh, much more than I thought I would going into it. Um, yeah. Thinking uh, it was going to be a soprano recording. Um, <laughs> it, I'm glad you like this one because I was like, oh, no, I really, eat your spinach again. No, I really <laughs> liked it. Um, I think with me, um, sopranos, you know, being the high vocal range, uh, sometimes to me, they can be like uh, trumpet players in uh, brass. Uh, they can go to excess in uh, when they reach their higher limits. And uh, as I've right. often said, I have this little uh, button between my eyes that the sopranos can really hit uh, when they're <laughs> overpowering. But I don't find uh, her voice like that at all. Uh, I noticed that uh, as a vocalist, she pays very close attention to dynamics uh, there's a lot of subtlety uh, in the phrasing of her lines uh, going from soft. Uh, never, I, I never felt that uh, her voice was pushed beyond what was fitting musically. And I felt possibly also due to the wonderful recording quality, as you m mentioned, uh, when she did sing very softly, that was captured as clearly as well. And the other thing that was nice was the always the vocal and the orchestral balance was spot on, uh, which we've heard recordings where it's not. Um, but here, I always felt that the voice and the instrumental parts were in perfect balance. Uh, so I really enjoyed her voice, which is uh, not something I can say for lots of sopranos. Uh, the other thing I noticed about her, uh, even though uh, <laughs> I don't understand much German either, is uh, I can tell that she places uh, real importance on enunciation. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, very not only clear. The everything's the, very clear. So yeah. not only the pronunciation of the words, but fitting in the line uh, and the flow of the melody. Uh, sounds just perfect uh, in the way that uh, she sings. So I was really drawn to her voice there. 
Uh, I was blown away by some of the uh, high notes uh, in the Handel, uh, just crystal clear and effortless without being uh, you know, strained at a high volume. So that was nice. I, and then this ensemble, uh, Pygmalion, they're really wonderful. Uh, what like I really think is important with uh, Baroque music is to have the right tempo and the feeling of motion. Uh, and they really get that on all the works seem to be locked in. They're, they're not too fast, but they have that sort of sprungness, the action in the, in the rhythm that gives a spirited sort of tension to the pieces, and I like that a lot. Uh, and there's a lot of variety. As you said, we go from lute, we've got the nice organ, and then we end up uh, in the Bach with this uh, nice uh, trumpet arrangement. Uh, in there too. So yeah, and just a great overall sound quality to the recording. So yeah, I really liked it. Good yeah. One. Yeah, good a good one. I, I kind of want to talk about it more, but let's move on. All right. <laughs> We're going to be here all night. Okay. The next one we have is um, two symphonies by the Latvian composer Talivaldis Keninch. I looked that up. <laughs> symphonies five and eight. Yeah. And his his piece Aria per corde Keninch. Can you, can, yeah, you're going to need like more than regular keys on the keyboard to type this name. So. <laughs> yeah, I had to uh, really search some of these out. Okay, yeah. um, but we're really hitting all the um, the uh, Soviet satellite countries uh, in recent weeks. Uh, this one, this is he's this guy's from Latvia, as was. Um, Petrus Vasks. We, we we heard um, him last year. And we really loved his oboe concerto. Uh, Kaninch is a very different kind of composer, though. Um, this is uh, performed by the Latvian National Symphony Orchestra, uh, conducted by Andres Poga, and it's on the Undine label. And um, okay, let's go on talk about Kaninch a little. He was somebody I'd never heard of before. He was a 20th century composer, 1919 born, and died in 2008. Which is, I guess, fairly long ago now. I mean, it's, it's still kind of recent, but it's it's not like he was a he was a contemporary of ours at one time. Okay, he's a neo. He's considered to be a neo romantic composer. I can hear that. Um, it's, he's using harmonic uh, or you know traditional harmony. Um, born in Lafayette, educated in France, and after that, he lived in Canada for the rest of his life. Uh, he fled Latvia shortly before the second Soviet invasion. They they do a lot of invading, <laughs> those, those Soviets, you those, think? <laughs> those Russians. I don't know. It seems to be like a national pastime. Anyway, uh, Symphony Number no. 5 is our first work, composed in 1976. All right. Well, we're going to discuss this work that no one's ever heard, <laughs> except for the handful of... Actually, probably everyone listening to this podcast probably heard it because they're probably listening to it to hear what I'm going to say about it, mm. right? Because he's, he's not a composer that gets talked about a lot. Um, okay, so according to the booklet, the symphony formally has three parts of equal length. Now, you might... But in reality, it comprises a single monolithic structure. Now, if you're wondering how those three parts divide, because um, your, your CD or your... Um, uh, stream is going to have four tracks. <laughs> the first two tracks are part one, and then part two would start on track three, and part three would start on track four, if you want to know the the formal divisions. Okay? There's a lot of narrative quality in this, and uh, it's not a happy story. Okay? It's kind of a dark work. Um, the first movement is... How am I going to say this? All right. The first... 
track, which is part one of the three-part work, which is really one whole thing, okay? I'll talk about it as though it's three parts, okay? Uh, is Molto Animato, okay? And it's only two minutes long, the first track. This is It's sort of like the introduction. Um, we hear the two main themes or the two worlds. Um, they're both irreconcilable. Um, we hear a robust contemporary world. Oh, this is the notes now. And then a fairy tale world, which when he says a fairy tale world, it doesn't mean like, comfortable bedtime stories. It means kind of an eerie sort of, uh, you know, dark woods, uh, you know, how, you know, gingerbread house in the dark woods kind of <laughs> feeling, you know, bad things are going to happen there. Uh, which glitters with the magic of dusk in the Latvian countryside, perhaps fireflies. Uh, okay. Um, this all occurs in the brief track one. Uh, it starts with the aggressive rushing theme. I guess that would be the contemporary world with a pounding bass drum and rushing strings. It sounds pretty ominous as the violins cascade in their higher range. And suddenly the music quietens. This is like all of a sudden. And we hear that fairy-like bell percussion sounds. Um, it's enchanting, but not in a comfortable way. Um, it's enchanting in the way that, you know, this magic, this malign magic, I guess, would be. But we don't know it's malign yet. It just has that magical glitter to it. You know it's sort of otherworldly, but you don't know which way it's going to go. Um, the music becomes aggressive again with stabbing brass and drums. And then we get to track two, which is still part one, remember? Labeled Doppio Lento. Uh, there's no pause, a sudden slowing and low sounds that put one in mind of vapors rising from the ground when I hear that kind of like amorphous sort of low string sound. It kind of gives me that. There's, there's some brass in there too, I think, or winds. Um, a rising figure develops in the strings. And in this work, the strings are either rising or swirling like they've been stopped by some barrier. Um, the brass stab at this, punctuated by the drum, and when that happens, they start to, they tend to stop rising. So it, it seems to be like an, a force that's coming against them. The low sound of vapors emerge again, and the music gains energy and speeds up as it makes its way to the higher frequency range. Once there, the melodic figures start circling again. The bass drum reemerges. We get a timpani and drum solo. It's brief. There's a lot of smaller percussion involved, which is very pretty. And there's a lot of woody sounds, too, which I also enjoyed. A sudden silence emerges, followed by random quiet sounds, and we are done with part one. Part two, which is track three, starts Largo Espressivo. It's a traditional type slow movement. Has a set of motifs that recall, according to the booklet, an ancient traditional melody from Keninch's birthplace of Kuzeme, the so-called long call, as well as the serf's folk song of later centuries, which erroneously become a symbol of the occupied homeland among exile composers. All right, the first motif has a chiming bell accompanying the funeral theme in the English horn. This morphs into an upward-moving string figure. Again, we have that those upward figures a lot. Under-swirling circular winds. The strings come up with a melodic theme that incorporates two repeating notes. The rest of the orchestra picks up that two-note stabbing theme, though it's more of a gentle jab here. This dissipates as a clarinet plays a forlorn melody. A rather magical section emerges with light, cloud-like strings floating around a sheet percussion sound. Uh, kind of like one of those things that they used to, for thunder in the uh, theater. Mm. And the winds take up the theme and it becomes darker. We get to part three, track four. Vivace con fuoco. 
So lively and with fire. So there's going to be a lot of passion here. Um, there's activity. This We have the same activity as the first part, but there's a Fata Morgana, a mirage in it, according to the notes. Um, the conclusion allows one to forget the industrial aggression with and with a light touch. The motif of the second part meanders away into nothingness at the end. Okay, the movement suddenly adopts a fast, seemingly out-of-control rhythm with veering figures. It's sort of like one of those, like, it feels like you're on one of those roller coasters that just kind of take these unexpected turns at a fast speed. It quietens eventually, and the melodic material begins to build up during a subtle crescendo. I like the way Kenninch changes the timbral texture with every phrase during this segment of the build-up. The sort of timbral texture changes to something more deliberate, with the brass playing slowly rising figures. High winds take over with chimey percussion and play something without a direction, circling. So this piece seems to be heading somewhere, then losing its way and falling back down. And this is really true of the entire work. A more aggressive brass attempt at moving to a higher key begins, and when the rest of the orchestra comes in, the direction is again hijacked, and the high winds start playing something more circular. Um, so rising and falling arpeggios, sort of, is what I mean by circular. The rhythm slows and then stops. Low brass aggressively try to start something up again. The music slows and quietens. Chimes and woody percussion get the last say, and there's a brief quiet rumble on the timpani before the end. I guess that gets the last say. Uh, the piece has ended without arriving at a desired destination, but it has gone somewhere. Okay, so we are somewhere, and maybe we don't know where, and we'll have to work it out from there. Okay. Symphony number no. 8, Symphonia Concertata, for organ and orchestra. Now, please, this is not a concerto, so the organ is really just mixed into the texture. It doesn't really have any big solo parts to it. The organist is uh, Iveta Apkalna. And uh, the first movement here is moderato. It's a stormy movement. Um, starts with two percussion beats and a bassoon playing a melody. The percussion and melody grow more agitated until they sound ominous. A spray of metallic percussion erupts and plays until the timpani come in again, and the music grows in ominousness. Ominous is a good word to describe this movement. We finally hear the organ interrupting the orchestra work and playing in ominous, again, sounding chords, while the orchestral figures configure into a sinister dance in response. The organ's part so far is very brief. There's a build-up in the orchestra with some punctuation by the organ. Once the orchestral material reaches a climax, the organ gets another few chords, which spur the orchestra to great, greater sinister heights. The music suddenly quietens as the organ lays down some quiet, low-register chords, and orchestral patterns prance above it. Another orchestral buildup features chiming percussion. It decrescendos quickly, and we hear a quiet, downward-wavering theme, which strings play high above with no vibrato. Another build-up and an approach to a cadence is interrupted by the low, brooding organ. There's lots of appealing percussion in this movement. It ends quietly. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting sounds in this. His themes tend to, well, in both of these works, there tends to be this desire to get to a higher place that's thwarted along the way. That seems to be a, a common theme with him. Second movement, chorale. This is... um. Again, when we hear the word chorale, we should think of singing in church on chords. Um, and this movement shape is generally features a chorale figure followed by a brief commentary by the rest of the ensemble. 
eerie strings begin this movement with winds. Uh, the organ plays the chorale as the winds make nature sounds, I guess, like animals in nature. But it's it's night nature. It's not the, the chirpy birds kind of thing. It's more like uh, crows and bats or whatever, whatever, whatever makes sounds at night that make you wonder what's going on. The eerie sounding strings are playing a chorale as well. Uh, the chorale progresses gradually in the organ. It's constantly juxtaposed by winds with a low bassoon melody. I think that's a bassoon. I couldn't really tell, but it's a low reed. We finally reach a point where the orchestra picks up the chorale. After its chords, there's a kind of wavering figure underpinned by an upward striding bass. The organ plays an arpeggio figure with a spacey sound in the upper register as the strings play melodic material. The movement has a sense of forward progress at this point. It's finally interrupted by a string chorale with organ bass. Again, there are lots of gorgeous percussion effects in this movement, though they're all momentary. The strings pick up the chorale, and the winds play Stravinskyan figures reminiscent of the Rite of Spring. This kind of made me think of Stravinsky a lot, in fact. The organ for the first time plays melodic figures as the strings accompany. The movement ends quietly. In the third movement, we get a toccata. This begins with a percussive explosion. A driving rhythm begins... But it's a bit lopsided with double and triple beats, I guess, with some interruptions. Uh, it's really tricky. There's a constant reaching for higher keys. Again, I've repeated this a lot. Um, this is one thing to keep in mind when you listen to this album. You can hear the upward movement of the themes. At one point, they're beaten back down by pounding percussion underlying a chord played by the strings. We get some harsh chords decorated with chiming percussion and organ figures. Then the... the ensemble reaches up again. The organ stops the progress with a long-held chord, and the brass and percussion hammer at it as though the harmonic progress has stalled there. The brass and percussion hammer at the um, the rest of the orchestra. The music quietens after a prolonged scene, uh, uh, after a prolonged moment of this, and there are yowling sounds from one of the wind instruments as percussion chimes. Suddenly, the harmonic field clears, all of a sudden, under chiming percussion, and we're at the end. So, sudden transcendence? Possibly. Um, the booklet notes seem to think uh, something like this is the case. Hard to say. All right, we get one more work. This is the Aria per Corde for String Orchestra, written in 1984. This starts quietly with melodic material in the cellos that slowly repeats and grows longer with each reiteration without reaching resolution. It gets interrupted each time. Finally, an upward momentum is reached, as we would expect by now from this composer. The upward figures get handed off to the violas, then to violins, higher registers, echoing the the heightening of the you know the the rising of the um, the tones. They play in harmony, and once again, as in the previous symphony, we reach a chord that gets sawed on as the cellos put out melodic tendrils beneath it. Violins break through the chords and move upward still always hitting a new chord ceiling, then eventually breaking through until they're in the stratospheric register. They quieten as the cello melody takes precedence. As the lower strings settle down, we hear pizzicato punctuation of the rhythm. The strings play their fragmentary melodic material in low registers for a while, until an upward-moving pizzicato bass line forms. The music warms until arriving on a low-held chord, and we hear tension-loosening melodic material until we reach a satisfied ending on a quiet pizzicato chord. So this album has a dark sound world. The theme, he seems to have this kind of like 
striving or reaching for something higher theme that he gets thwarted from reaching often. Uh, there's a lot of um, things to enjoy along the way. There's a lot of interesting uh, orchestration. Um, the compositions are all good works. They're pretty solidly composed. Uh, there is a through line to the end. And there are magical moments in them based around timbre. I like this enough. It's going to take a little listening to uh, kind of get familiar with. Um, it's good for a brooding afternoon listen, I would say. Um, interesting, I thought. It's an interesting uh, new composer for me to, th to think about now. Yeah, this one, unfortunately, I, I was hoping, I was excited about it because we were going to have an orchestral work. Yeah. Uh, and then I turned up not liking it at all. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I, well... Well, it was kind of dark. I was sort of, yeah, you know. I, it does have good timbre exploration. So he yeah. uses the full palette of orchestra. There's a lot of good low brass. What I found, as you described it, uh, it, it reaches for something that gets cut off. Uh, right. For me... It's a little that, frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I felt like it lacks development Yeah, in that things constantly seem to be ended before they're taken to the next level and it's on to something new and so there, as a constant change of tambo tam tambral scenery yeah uh, that which is you know keeps it moving along but i kept waiting for something to uh you know come back get uh redeveloped uh in a new way built upon and i just don't uh, get, you know, get that kind of satisfaction from it. So I, I was getting frustrated uh, through, you know, a lot of it. And um, yeah, the notes are all in form. praise, especially of the the uh, organ, use of the organ. But right. I, I was really thinking I would be depressed if I had to play this on the organ because... Uh, you don't I, really I, get any chance in the spotlight, but you're not yeah, supposed to here, um, I don't think. So, yeah, I was thinking... Uh, Latvian composer, you know, because we really enjoyed the Vasques uh, before. Well, he's a very different composer, yeah. too. And he's, he's also younger. Yeah, so. I was, you know, just hoping there was going to be some kind of uh, national kind of commonality or something. But, uh, yeah, this one, as try as I may, I don't know. I think, he, I think he lived in a darker time, though, than I guess Vasques does. You yeah, know. I'm sure. I was looking, you know, oftentimes we talk about yeah, national characters. to be happy about. Yeah. We talk about <laughs> national characters and music and things. But I couldn't really pull much out of this uh, other, other than, you know, interesting uh, sound colors and, and like that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not really an easy listen. Hmm. Um, it, it's going to take getting used to, even for me. But I don't know. I guess it was okay. I liked it enough, yeah, I right. thought. Okay. I, I might give it another listen. Not to see. Give it, a, give it a listen yourself, listener. It's free. Yeah. <laughs> Just go to, yeah, let us know. Stream it and see if you can. Okay, next we had a fascinating album, especially as far as the soloist goes. Um, nine trumpets and one piano, trumpet music from around the world. Um, not a bit of a misnomer because it's not really from around the world. It's really from three or four <laughs> places, <laughs> but uh, most most of them in Latin America. But um, this is by the uh, Brazilian. Um, what can I call him? Hornist? I don't know. Fabio Brum, because he plays nine different kinds of horn yeah. on this album. 
Um, and uh, his pianist, uh, the one piano is uh, Santiago Baez. And what a pianist this guy is, man. Mm. He, he has to play some really complicated rhythms and he puts them across really beautifully throughout the album. This is on the Naxos label. I want to say something about the Naxos label. The Naxos label is a bargain label. And people kind of think that um, they get what they pay for sort of things with um, classical music as well. Um, not the case with Naxos. Just because you're paying less, you're not getting worse performances by any means. These are really top flight usually. Uh, they just uh, usually don't have to pay these big stars like gigantic salaries. to. So, you know, they, they want to make a lot of money. So if you're going to buy a CD, uh, Naxos CDs are a good way to go. They're bargain priced and they're usually... Uh, great performances and well recorded as well. In fact, uh, Ranitsky's on the Nexus label. Well, I should say, I mean, I guess you yeah. could tie it in with Ranitsky and and this. So Ranitsky was music that, you know, was going unheard, yeah. and uh, you know, as we spoke with uh, Daniel and Merrick about it, you know, one of the problems with any kind of music, but it's a problem in classical music, is getting things on a program that people haven't heard of before, right. you know. Um, well, even if you do get it on the program, they might not even come to hear it, so you have to pair right. it you with something like it really well-known that they'll want to hear. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's great that an, a label like Naxos will get out, uh, you know, that music, Ranitsky, which, you know, comes from the classical period. Um, it's not like it's new contemporary music it's kind of new to most listeners classical era music and here what i felt as a trumpet player myself you know there's a big problem with trumpet repertoire you know as a instrument compared to you know other instruments because everyone knows the piano repertoire and and um you know violin by all famous composers uh but trumpet has kind of a problem you know uh there's the standard fare, the uh, you know, Haydn and Hummel, and um, you know you get into uh, modern things, Hindemith, and most of the other kind of compositions, uh, the repertoire people don't know. And it's not that there's not a lot of really good music out there; it's just that uh, it doesn't get recorded enough, and uh, it's hard to become familiar with it. And uh, so here. Some of this music is kind of unusual, but it's all really interesting. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't get it's to a, hear it. It's all it. contemporary, too. Yeah. That's another important point. All these composers are not only alive now, but very young. A lot of Well, right. some of them are our age. Yeah. <laughs> They're middle-aged. Nobody's yeah. old. Let's just put it that way. And otherwise, unless a recording like this comes out and Naxos takes a chance on this, you're not going to hear this music. Uh, so it was a good opportunity to hear some you know, contemporary trumpet uh, music. It makes you feel that, oh, it, you know, trumpet music, uh, classical music isn't sort of, you know, locked in a vault <laughs> from bygone eras. And uh, and you've got uh, this performance. The only thing I, I can say, well, maybe I'll talk more about it at the end. I was disappointed with the sonics uh, <laughs> on the recording. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I'll talk about that when we get to the end of it. Okay, I thought they actually sounded pretty good. Now you have to tell me. 
All right. Okay. I didn't hear this on a great <laughs> stereo like, uh. you, like you did. Okay. So this is all contemporary composers from the Americas, Spain, and England, which I would hardly consider to be around the world living in Japan <laughs> as we do. <laughs> okay. Part of the globe. A slice Part, of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's one slice of the globe, you know. All right. Um, all of the music contains elements of jazz and folklore originating from each composer's homeland. Um uh, like when when they say jazz, they're using that in a very wide meaning. So, like Brazilian oh, jazz, for example, would yeah. be like those Brazilian rhythms or things like I, that. I would say that um, the sort of jazz harmonies and rhythm influence uh, that comes through in contemporary music are right. used. Uh, uh, yeah, in some sections more than others in some pieces. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of funny what you were saying, by the way. Classical music hasn't really... There are a lot of great solo works for brass, individual brass instruments that just don't get played much. Yeah. Because it's... it's um, I think jazz came along and sort of set like brass instruments free. They got to solo and right. really be the star, finally. Um, but it's a shame. There There is great stuff in classical music, too, and it should be heard more. Yeah. I agree. But um, I wonder if it's just because we associate... Um, you know, brass instruments with jazz so much that we don't really, you know, hear these classical be. works. I don't know. It, it's a bit of a puzzle, but mm. there's, there's certainly like tons of music out there that hasn't been heard, and we're covering mm. quite a bit of it here That's on this podcast, aim. but only a tiny slice. I mean, there's so much. Yeah. It's really crazy. Yeah. But I mean, anyway. that's, this is uh, this is exactly what we've got here on this recording is exactly what I'm also trying to do on... Uh, you know, the jazz side. Uh, yeah. You can find a lo the same names over and over in the awards shows and the magazines mm -hmm. and on the major labels. And anyone can, they're easy to find. But what about all this other music? It's sort of lost in, uh, you know, the, the mix of what's available yeah. now. Uh, so uh, we want to point those kind of things out. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this recording, if you're a a trumpet player uh, definitely want to give this a listen I think not you're definitely going to have to hear this yeah not only yeah. for the virtuosity of uh, uh, Brum but also for the selection of music because uh, you've probably never heard these works before and they're really surprising well you definitely haven't heard them before because most of them were written in the last two years yes so. yeah. and you were probably in your house kind of like not allowed to go out to a concert <laughs> alright but um Anyway, let's go through this. Um, <laughs> the only thing is you're not going to be able to play the, uh, not because they're difficult, but you're going to need to go to the music store and buy a bunch of <laughs> different instruments to play them I all. know, you're not going to be playing all of these. Yeah, Especially, sure. and some of these pieces have several several different in horns one piece, in one yeah. piece, yeah. yeah. which I'm going to have to defer to you two when we get to some of those. Well, the, I, I, I should say, <laughs> at first I was glad you sent me the album notes. Yeah, but then they didn't help very much at all. Anyway, so. they did help a little. At least a I knew a what the bit. instruments were. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> they yeah. But anyway, it's it's kind of these um, contemporary composers writing for this um, soloist. And whenever composers do this in these days, they're always doing some sort of personal kind of almost jokey thing, you know. Mm -hmm. With the and that drives me crazy. I mean, we can yeah. handle something serious especially now you know right. it'd be nice you know right. I wanted to bring this part element of his technique out or something like that mm. anyway the first um, composer here is Daniel Freiberg and he's uh, from Argentina born in 1957 so he's older than us but um, um, based in New York now and this is called uh, Preludio Carioca 
Um, and this one features a cornet in B flat. So that's uh, horn number one. I'm going to count the horns for you. There are nine of them. <laughs> okay, this is number one, cornet in B flat. A carioca is a native of Rio de Janeiro, by the way, where the soloist um, Brum grew up. The composer's intention is to remind Brum of his childhood. See, this is what I mean. Yeah, you're kind of mm. like saying something about this, you know, soloist that you yourself don't really know. But, but of course, the music, you'd be, you know, you and I talk a lot about the music we heard when we were growing up in the 80s. Like we talked about, you know, Tears for Fears. It was just around, you know. Right. It's not like today where you listen on the, um, you know, you can just choose your own personal music on the uh, internet. When you were in college, we were all more or less listening to the same music, you know. Yeah. And uh, it, it was kind of like a shared thing between us. And um, I wonder if that still happens, really. Anyway, this um, piece is loosely based on the Brazilian Chorinho, uh, a popular song form that played a major part in the development of bossa nova, Brazilian jazz, and samba, according to the booklet. Um, I like the uh, burnished tone of the cornet here. Uh, it comes through clearly. Uh, this rhythm sounds like an old Cuban dance to my ear, like the Orchestra Akokan recording that we heard, but it's mm -hmm. not Cuban at all, according to the composer. It's a Brazilian rhythm. Actually, it has a little bit of to me, a tango element too, um, mm -hmm. something Argentinian. Um, maybe I'm just hearing that because I know the composer's from Argentina. But he's claiming it's all Brazilian. Maybe he just couldn't keep the uh, Argentinian element out because it's who he is. Sort of like when Dvorak wrote the New World Symphony and used all those um, folk themes. Right. There's a lot of Czech-sounding folk themes in there too. <laughs> you know, he just almost couldn't help himself. So we should say, um, um, for listeners who may not be familiar with these different instruments. Uh, the cornet and trumpet are uh, basically the same length of tubing, but the bore is different. And okay. uh, so when you have a, a cornet, uh, it's going to have a more of a rounded tone. Uh, was used a lot in uh, brass bands uh, rather than trumpet. And uh, a lot of the solo uh, literature for uh, music in the earlier centuries was uh, for cornet, like uh, brass band music featured a cornet soloist rather than a trumpet soloist. He's uh, a, a little bit rounder, um, more lyrical tone than trumpet. Uh, yeah, Big Spiderbeck played the cornet, right? right? Yeah, okay. played cornet. Uh, it used to be more popular in early jazz. I actually started out playing on a cornet before I got my first trumpet. Uh, and um, yeah, basically the same instrument, Overall, cornet looks a little more compact because it's uh, the tubing is wrapped differently with a little different bore. But uh... yeah, this this work is in ternary form. It has a slow middle section, and the cornet plays this nice legato yeah, it's melody. Light and uh, agile mm -hmm. type of playing, I think, that right. suits the instrument well. And then the original melody comes back, and there's a cute wink at the end of this piece. Yes, I really liked it. Okay. Next, Gilson Santos, born in 1977, so this guy's younger than us, in Brazil, and he today is based in Rio de Janeiro. And this piece is called Canzoa. Uh, this features a cornet in F, now different than the B-flat one. This is a higher cornet, and uh, if, if, you, if you really feel a need to uh, separate your listeners' uh, heads from their... <laughs> the rest of their body this would be a good instrument to use it's a very bright yeah. sound unusual it, it, instrument too yeah um 
Okay, so anyway, the, the piece Kanzuwa, this comes from the Yoruba language of West Africa. Uh, Kanzuwa is the house where candomblé religious ceremonies take place. Uh, this work was conceived to show a bit of the magical, colorful sounds of Afro-Brazilian songs and the rhythmic richness of the drumming that accompanies rituals and dances to the Orixas, which are deities of the religions of Yoruban influences, the Orixas. And their the rhythm they dance to is called the Vasi, Vasi rhythm. It's a pattern of six used in West African religions that are influenced by Yoruba. Leads the work, and it moves to a simple style influenced by Yongo, which is a dance and music genre from Brazil. We hear that in the middle. This rhythm is, it says six, but it's complicated. Mm. Um, it has a, yeah, and the, the cornet plays over it. Um, the piano is really doing all the rhythmic work here. It sounds like a really complicated uh, piece to play for the piano. Uh, the rhythm moves quickly and the cornet has to be on his toes slower tempo in the middle with the cornet playing a lyrical melody uh, the piano is very busy throughout this piece so a nod to uh, Santiago Baez here he, he's really an excellent accompanist especially in music like this this sounds hard to play the simpler Yongo style emerges right around the middle of the piece we hear the Vasi rhythm again at the end and it sounds kind of like a telegraph message on the piano as the cornet solos lyrically above. Um, the cornet has good stuff to play. It's a very cool ending with some squeezed out high notes, mm. which I really, rather enjoyed. Next, Douglas Braga, Brazilian composer and saxophonist, or saxophonist, as my British friends like to say, who's from Sao Paulo. This is called Cor, from the French Cœur, for heart. Um, and he wrote this um, from the fact that he wrote the piece the day he first heard his um, his uh, baby's heartbeat the first day. So that's why he named mm. this piece that. Um, this features um, uh, a cornet in F in all four movements. And in the middle two movements, there's also a flugelhorn in B flat. Mm. Um, and it, the piece unites jazz, minimalism, French music, the sounds of the city, and the sounds of birds. And the melodies were based on three possible names for his coming baby, Ellis Teresa Caetano. So, ta ta ta, I guess. Okay, after those names. It's in multiple movements. There are four movements. The first one is labeled Allegro and has a virtuosic opening from the cornet with the piano sprinkling accompaniment in a complicated rhythm. Um, you can hear what he's playing clearly between the cornet's pauses. At one point, there are some interesting descending swoops from the cornet. He even goes up to a high note and glissandos down, sounding like a roller coaster on a drop feels. <laughs> it was pretty exhilarating sound. I like the movement a lot, especially the bright brassy sound the cornet makes in it. The canto, second movement, is a slow movement, starting with arpeggiated figures in the piano while the cornet plays. The piano part stands out in this movement for me. Uh, he gets a lot of space, and uh, when he's playing solo, I think that's when the uh, so the horn soloist is changing his instrument. It's generally <laughs> a good indication that's going to come up. That was my signal. And in fact, here it's pretty easy to hear. At about two minutes, we hear the heavier flugelhorn in B-flat. Uh, this instrument sticks to its lower register and gets off some cool low sounds, mm. especially its last note, which is way in the depths of the instrument. Third movement, intermezzo. The flugelhorn starts this movement off with a bereft sounding solo. The piano finally comes in with some 19th century romantic era piano figures. 
as the flugelhorn bottoms out in its lower register. After this, the cornet in F returns with its brighter sound. He finds his way to the higher end of his register and makes a grand statement up there to end the movement. The finale is all cornet. It starts with a mechanical bass line in the piano, ostinato at first, but then breaking out of its pattern without losing its stubborn, obsessive quality, uh, soloed over virtuosically by the cornet. The pattern is interrupted by rolled piano chords, after which a new virtuosic section starts for the cornet. The rhythm is very complicated, especially in the piano part. Um, I really don't envy this pianist, but I do admire him, or rather I do envy his ability to articulate it. I think it sounds like a lot of work, though. <laughs> nice ringing high note in the cornet to end the piece. Next, we have Juan Carlos Valencia Ramos, Colombian composer. Oh, it's a new country. Uh, arranger and trumpeter, born and based in Caldas. And he was born in 1978, younger than us. This piece is called Parallel, composed in 2020. Features a cornet in F and a trumpet in B-flat. We've heard both of these instruments in earlier pieces. The piece shows a parallel. Oh, by the way, that's um, instruments number two and four of the nine. So <laughs> just in case you're keeping score. Uh, the piece shows a parallel between elements of Western European music and Latin American music. Uh, the opening uses melodic and harmonic structures from late 19th century Western classical music and juxtaposes them with the Quirpa Llanero rhythm of the Colombian Venezuelan Joropo music and dance form, which we hear towards the end. I'm guessing the coordinate in F starts this piece, uh, plays an elegiac melody over chiming chords on the piano. Then we get the Quirpa Llanero rhythm starting in the piano. Wow to the pianist again here. Uh, there's a changeover to the trumpet as the music reverts to its Western European profile. Um, juxtaposes is a good word for what the styles do in this piece. They trade off unpredictably, like you'll hear one the more straightforward European rhythm, and then you'll hear the really highly uh, rhythmic um, uh, Latin American one. Uh, There's a fantastic honk from the cornet at about the <laughs> 2 minute 50 second mark. It's totally exposed. You can't miss it. It'll actually stop you if you're doing something else. There are occasional knocks on the wood of the piano, and in the middle of the pianist, I guess, since he's not or it could be the trumpeter who's There's not some growls playing. and shouts going on. Yeah, he yeah. says, hey, and he screams at one part. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay, it all sounds fun. Whoever screams throws himself into it, and he's not mic'd when he does that. Sounds like it's coming from far away, and that's probably a good thing. I don't think I'd like hmm. a mic'd version of that <laughs> coming out of my speakers. Um, after that, good feelings come out of the Latin rhythms and the trumpet, I'm guessing, at this point. At the yeah, end, enjoy a rollicking piece. theme. Yeah, is that a trumpet, you think, at the end? Yeah, I think it's B-flat okay. at the end, yeah. I was guessing. Enjoyable piece must be fun to hear and watch in the concert hall. Uh, and a fantastically clear ending note, I said, on the cornet here. It's a trumpet at the end. I believe, the he, I believe it switches to B-flat trumpet, yeah. At the end, keeps stays there. Okay, I we'll think say so. it's a trumpet. Um, see, this is why you have to see this in the concert hall, because you yeah. can see what he's playing. Okay, next we have Pacho Flores. This is track eight, Venezuelan composer and renowned trumpeter, now living in Valencia, born in 1981. Wow, he's hmm. a young guy. Actually, I guess he's not so young anymore. But uh, <laughs> boy, how the years go by. This piece is called Heteronimos, also composed in 2020. Um, this features instrument number five, a cornet in C, instrument number six, a trumpet in C. 
I really couldn't tell the difference between these two instruments, so I'm going to need help here. Um, the the sound, like you said, the cornet sound has kind of like a the wider bore, so it's going to have like a mm. a fuller sound. But in this, it's it's so subtle for me, especially on a recording. It was hard to hear. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of puzzling. But he must have wanted a certain type of. Uh, tonality or phrasing uh, with that. Mm. Now, normally, the reason we have these instruments in different keys, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with, uh, you know, brass instruments so much, uh, the modern trumpet that we hear in pop music and jazz is in B flat. And that came out of sort of uh, wind bands and, uh, you know, marching bands that uh, play together uh trumpets, trombones, and saxophones, which are all in the flat keys. And so wind music tends to be written in those flat keys. So when we say trumpet in B flat, uh, that means when you play a C on the trumpet, it's a B flat on the piano. And what that means, you know, historical trumpets before they had valves, you can play a series of notes with no valves just on the lips. And those intervals get closer as you go higher. Uh, so that any given instrument will be naturally uh, in tune over those certain intervals. Now, of course, the, the valves uh, shorten the uh, tubing and make it possible to play all notes. However, there are no perfectly in tune brass instruments. And so a trumpet in B flat would tend to lend its natural harmonics and the open intervals to the flat keys. Now, however, in orchestras, uh, stringed instruments with their tuning, I know E, A, D, you know, B, uh, G, these notes tend to favor the sharp keys. Uh, and of course you can play in those keys on a B flat trumpet, but the intonation can be a problem. So in orchestral type of music, they'll tend to be a trumpet in C or D, uh, which matches those keys uh, more closely. However, here, when you're playing with the piano, uh, in contemporary music, oftentimes they just stick with B-flat trumpet. Uh, but you can do anything you want. So as you see here, we've got these F cornets. Uh, why you would go from C cornet to C trumpet, I think, must be more of a sort of a timbre type thing. Yeah, like a co sure. or coloring kind yeah. of something really subtle that he wants to achieve. Yeah. Anyway, uh, kind of interesting uh, to do that. Yeah, the piece is called Heteronimos, and it's inspired by the memory of the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa, who coined the term heteronym for his imaginary literary personae. Um, the booklet doesn't really go into any uh, detail on that. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. yeah um, so I guess his his imaginary, they wouldn't be people, they would be heteronyms, I guess. Um, here, the composer applies a plurality of styles, characters, and temperaments, which create a space for a new heteronym, the interpreter. Okay, anyway. Okay. I think we start with the cornet. Um, I'm not really sure, though. The piece has an introduction, then goes into a downward moving pattern in 3-4 on the piano, which the cornet waltzes over or whatever that instrument is. A new section starts at uh, 3 minutes and 30 seconds after a brief piano interlude with a slower 3-4 rhythm. I'm guessing we're hearing the trumpet in C here or the opposite. You know, we heard the trumpet first in the cornet because those long solo piano parts are 
pretty much where I think the instruments get changed. Okay, this instrument plays long-held notes as the melody for the most part, as his melody, and we get to hear the tone clearly. The rhythm suddenly changes in the trumpet, I guess, uh, responds with a more active melody. There's a sudden change of rhythm and tone via a piano melody, and we get a solo from the, the other instrument, I'm guessing it's the cornet, with no accompaniment. The piano gets some solo space afterwards, which he uses to morph the material into a new, more upbeat rhythm, and the cornet, I'm guessing again, responds with more brightly played material. The piece is enjoyable, comes across as more intellectual than the others, with its changes of instrument timbre and rhythmic material. And the instrument kind of, he uses the other instrument for the middle section, I think, in this case. I just wanted a different sound there. Okay. Nine and ten. I had trouble with this one. Santiago Baez, Spanish composer. Arranger, multi-instrumentalist based in Córdoba, born in 1982, the youngest composer yet. This piece is called Serendipia, also composed in 2020. Uh, the piece emerged from a process of reflection during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, right away, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> but, uh, I wish they just wouldn't tell us that, yeah. you know? It's like, yeah. Because it's just, I don't want to hear stuff about the, it's not about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's just his thoughts during it, I guess, right. his musical thoughts. Okay, it's a fluid dialogue between instruments and does justice to the soloist's musical versatility with its many horns. Okay, this is in two movements and they're both very long compared to all the other works on this disc. They're both about 10 minutes long. And I think this piece, I don't know, It's I, th I think it's okay as it is, but inserted into the program like this is such a long work, and we stay with this sort of harmonic language for such a yeah. long time. I thought it was a little too much for this program. So I think I don't want to say anything about the piece, but I think it's that, that it's sort of a programming, mm. you know, quest a question of programming here, of not not optimum programming. Let's say, okay, my 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 humble opinion. Anyway, the first – man, this is going to really drive me crazy trying to explain this. Um, each movement has several different horns in it. Um, the first movement, we hear um, a flugelhorn in B-flat, instrument three. Then we hear two new instruments or a new instrument, instrument seven, piccolo trumpet in B-flat, and then instrument four again, trumpet in B-flat. So we have one new instrument here. A bewildering array of instruments. On top of that, the piece starts in a dark place with a jagged pattern – and the piano part, very not very different. Yeah, it's a, it's a contrast with the whole the entire rest of the program that we've heard so far, which was for the most part pretty joyful. Um, I'd say we're hearing the trumpet first. Um, for a middle section, slower than the opening, we get the heavy flugelhorn. A brief piano interlude, and we're back to the trumpet. The musical sounds like your standard Western classical rhythms, with some syncopations thrown in. As the music gets serious, we get a change in timbre from the soloist, and we finally hear the piccolo trumpet right at the end of the movement after a brief piano interlude. It sounds smart alecky, like a smart alecky. It's like it's kind of like a wisecracking <laughs> type type of thing in this context, playing rapid snickering figures. The second movement features instrument eight, corno da caccia, which is a hunting horn yeah. in B flat. And nine, a horn in F, which I'm guessing is a French horn. Um, I like the that. I believe, yeah, right. Yeah. And those are our nine horns. This is the last of them in this uh, particular movement. Corno de Caccia is also a kind of rounded, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, right. Looped I horn see. as well, yeah. Okay. It starts with a very burnished sounding horn. Total surprise. I'm guessing that's the uh, the French horn. Uh, the melody is slow and mellow, um, befitting a vast plain in the morning. That's the image I got. Piano accompaniment is a ticking bass note and some sprinkled harmony in the upper register. The ticking piano eventually becomes repeating chords as the melody plays over a long section. At one point, the piano erupts into high-speed material over, and the corno da caccia plays material with a lot of quickly repeated notes over it, I think. Later, the, I think it's the corno da caccia. Later, the material slows and the horn returns for a romantic melody. So this composer tends to like to do that ternary form thing where he changes mm. the horn for the middle section. Um, the piece ends inconclusively as the horn plays on an unresolved note. Uh, this whole piece went on for rather long, and it's more European rhythmic patterns interrupt the rhythmic vibrancy of the Latin American styles that we've been hearing so far. I thought it was kind of an odd choice. Mm. But again, it was probably composed for the program. Okay. It's a good piece in itself, though. Track 11, Dimitri Cervo, or Cervo, I guess, based in Porto Alegre, Brazil. Born in 1968, so he's uh, one of us. Mm. This is the fourth movement of his piece, uh, Serie Brasil 2010, number 10, opus 61, As Cuatro Estasoes Brasileiras, which means the four Brazilian seasons. So think the four seasons of Vivaldi. This is the fourth movement, Varal Nordestino, Northeastern Summer, and it's a dance. Written in 2018 to 2019, and this particular version was written in 2020. This only features a trumpet in C. This is instrument number six in our catalog. I don't think I na- numbered them all from the beginning, but this is the last movement of a four movement work, very rhythmically active and extremely virtuosic throughout for the trumpet, who has to play rapid repeated notes. Wow. The piano's also got some challenging rhythms. The rhythm is interrupted. The trumpet plays arpeggio patterns as a solo. We get back to the opening rhythmic material, and the piece ends triumphantly. Summer must be pretty awesome in the northeast of Brazil. <laughs> yeah, this has got a lot of multiple tonguing, uh, yeah. rather than rather than going with your tongue, which yeah. can only go so fast on brass instruments. You can do uh, double tonguing and triple tonguing. So you Ooh. do uh, you use the back of your tongue. So instead of going ta 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 ta, you go tuka 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 tuka. Or oh, cool. uh, like triple is tuka 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 and you do triplet things. Uh, so yeah, he's uh, a master at these techniques. Uh, I thought this one comes off a bit etude-ish uh, compared to the yeah, other compositions, like you know something you would play that is uh, melodic, but to build up uh, technique. Uh, I think it's more of like a toccata, I would think, or because it, it's yeah. it's the last of four movements that we haven't heard. You know, we haven't yeah, heard the, the final three. variation with lots of rhythmic things added yeah. to it, uh, but technically very impressive. Okay, we end the program with track 12, Misha Mulov Abado, a jazz composer and double basses horn based in London, England. Oh. <laughs> born, born in 1990. That's a real change. Yeah. This is called the Cansao de Sobriedad, um, which means sobriety song, and it was written last year in 2021, so it's the newest work on this um, oh. album. It features a cornet in B-flat, which is the first uh, horn we heard on this album, and so it's also going to be the last. Uh, interestingly enough, this work is an homage to uh, the song uh, Chega de Saudad uh, by Antonio Carlos Jobim, which uh, translates into English as No More Blues, 
<laughs> and since it's called Sobriety Song, um, the composer made the joke that his version could be called No More Booze. <laughs> okay. The melodies in both works share a similar character and harmonic structure, and the title refers to the composer's decision to reduce his alcohol intake during lockdown after a year <laughs> of pandemic when he was drinking, started drinking too much, which was apparently a big problem. At the time, we actually talked about it, too, in 2021, where we were just staying home and drinking yeah. all the time. You yep. know? Yeah. You can hear us talking about that on the um, the uh, on last year's episodes. Right. Okay. As I pour myself another whiskey. <laughs> You're right. I, I'm, I'm dry tonight. I've got some oh. tea here. Okay. I'm going for the tea. I thought I needed a little break. Okay. This has a kind of uh, – yeah – this has a kind of bluesy feel to the melody, uh, very different from what we've heard um, so far. The piece progresses like one of those great American songbook tunes from the 1920s and 30s. So it's got that kind of traditional style to it. It's got an appealing lyrical feel. And the second section is livelier with a jazzy rhythm. And again, one of those 1920s feels. It's pretty carefree, cheerful work in spite of the title. Um, I thought the soloist, Fabio Brum, is just a fantastic player. He's got a great tone on all of his nine instruments and plays fluently throughout and virtuosically where, where required. And uh, his piano accompanist um, just keeps him in the pocket. This is really demanding uh, playing rhythmically. Um, I don't think any kind of conservatory-trained pianist is going to go out and play music like this. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of work. I think this really has to be in your soul a little bit to be able to, to mm -hmm. play it this well. So this is quite a... Quite an experience in all new works. An enjoyable, lightish sort of album. Um, yeah, a good one. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, <clears throat> I thought this is kind of a trumpet player's kind of fantasy. When you, uh, you know, if you ever see like... Uh, Live in the, the dream. If you ever see the league, the uh, Eagles play, like uh, <laughs> for every song, some, you know, roadie guy comes out with a new guitar just for that song and it's yeah. all tuned up, you know? Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe you've got a, you know, a Fender on this tune and the next tune, uh, we're going to have a Gibson and we're going to have an acoustic and a 12 string. And so, you know, a new instrument for each song. Yeah. Hey, usually on trumpet, you know, the guy's got his one trumpet fits in jazz. Maybe you've got your flugelhorn or in the orchestra, you've got a couple different keys, but this is like where the, <laughs> You get to bring out all of the hardware, uh, all kinds of weapons, bazookas in different keys and things. So uh, that's a lot of fun. You're not going to get that on a, another album. And it's nice to hear these contemporary pieces. Uh, I thought they were all really interesting uh, in their own way, incorporating lots of different rhythms, uh, musical influences. And the musicianship is just stellar. Um you know his uh, trumpet playing is fabulous, and as you say, the pian the pianist is, you know, right up, <laughs> up there to be able to play know, this right? kind of music, yeah. too. Uh, the only thing I didn't like about this recording so much, as I mentioned right at the beginning, is the sonics. In a way, it to me it has a very small kind of recital hall room sound to it. Oh, okay, uh, I thought it was well recorded. It was clear yeah. at least. Yeah. yeah, that the instruments sound fabulous and recorded. I just. I thought it could use a little bit more of like a studio touch rather than this sort of recital hall um, no, kind of ambiance. To me, it, it sounded like a live room where I was in a concert rather than a 
a studio recording. Um, but, you know, the instruments and the balance between them was perfect, and I could hear everything very well. Um, mm. So, yeah. So it's uh, just a, a question of preference. Uh, yeah, really, I guess. Yeah. I mean, maybe that yeah. was, you know, that was the kind of uh, ambiance they were trying to get on. And in that case, yeah, fine. But, um, yeah, excellent uh, program, really interesting. And, uh, you know, going to hear all these instruments in one place ever again yeah. so a unique recording let's yeah. just put it that way a unique program as well you'll probably never hear any of these works again either i mean they're good they're worth hearing yeah but I think they're, definitely they're hard to play and they just require something special out of the soloist you just have several horns and uh, i don't know yeah but this is what trumpet really needs i mean mm. uh it needs this kind of exposure with all these you know new works you know someone yeah i guess i shouldn't have said that i want to encourage trumpet players to take this up yeah, I mean, it's it's also, it just starts with getting these works out there so people can hear them uh, rather than hearing the same old things over and over again. Uh, right. So, yeah, I think it's uh, pretty exciting. And, uh, yeah, definitely all trumpet players should take a listen to this, uh, not only for the material, but the stellar uh, technique and sound that he has on all of these instruments. Great control. Yeah, fabulous player. All right. Okay, we are well into the horny part of the program now. We're going to stick with uh, <laughs> horniness right to the end because I've got an all-trumpet jazz program this week. <laughs> and, well, as I said earlier, my uh, listening list is uh, 18 pages long. <laughs> now, I have uh, uh, more albums than I'll ever get to. Uh, so for every kind of category I have of recent releases, uh, I'm able to kind of pick and choose uh, what I think will be most interesting uh, among them. And so when I was uh, looking at trumpet releases this time, I said, well, let me pick uh, some things that uh, aren't making it into the big press. Uh, there's a couple new releases that are getting a lot of in. Uh, attention uh, from trumpet players. Uh, but I didn't want to pick up on those. So I wanted to pick up on some things that might slip under the radar uh, for most people. And so that's what I've focused on tonight. Be a bit international and some unique uh, programs and also concepts, I think. Uh, so we're going to start out in France uh, with a trumpeter Julian Allure. Yeah. And uh, what drew me to this uh, was uh, the sort of concept of the album and also that uh, it features on uh, Fender Rhodes, Simon Chevalier. Yeah. Whose album That's Light odd. Blue made our uh, best album list of last year. Yeah, both uh, of ours, actually. We yeah. both like this in the jazz. I picked in this jazz. one. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so uh, that drew me to this and said, well, definitely give this a listen. And once I heard it, I was uh, pretty intrigued. Uh, so the recording is uh, Light in the Box. And this is on Vita Productions label and uh, features uh, Julien Allure on trumpet and flugelhorn, uh, also with uh, all original compositions by him. And this is his third album as a leader. 
Uh, he's got some other recordings uh, as a sideman in different uh, groups. And so to sort of uh, f match the concept of his compositions here, he specifically wanted a Chevalier on, on roads here. And so the nature of the program uh, tends to be uh, even beaded uh, funky tunes uh, where that sound of the roads uh, is put to best use. And I have to say, I was really impressed by Chevalier's Rhodes concept playing. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's sort of a distorted Rhodes yeah. sound, isn't it? It's not just the bell kind of sound that you usually hear from the he, Fender He Rhodes. gets a nice distortion. And also, uh, as I'll point out, I think in my notes, uh, so he uses a nice delay on some songs. Uh, so when I say uh, he, he's a great uh, pianist, as we heard last year, but he also has another side to his personality, uh, this different concept that comes out on the roads and matches here. Uh, rounding out, we've also got uh, Yoni Zelnik on bass and uh, Ellie Martin Charrier on drums and uh, a little bit of vocal on one tune uh, with uh, Camille, uh, Camille Bertol uh, also on here. Okay. Uh, so we start out uh, this recording with a tune called uh, Serpent à Vapeur. 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 Yeah. Like Serpent à Vapeur. Like a steamy snake or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think it means like steamed snake, like something you would eat. Is it? Oh. A vapeur would mean like something steamed. Oh. You know, okay. Like a, like a bun or something. <laughs> I didn't know it was a, a I dish. think. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, that's right. what I'm guessing. Yeah. So, um, this is a very interesting tune Maybe to Maybe he start. went to China or something. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> uh, this one starts with a kind of repeated uh, rhythmic riff on a trumpet, and then uh, it's uh, passed off uh, to the roads. It, it gets a kind of minor uh, descending uh, melody with an undulating rhythm to it. Uh, and... Uh, the the bridge has a contrasting kind of rising phrase uh, that offsets that initial riff. The groove and meter change a lot uh, through the sections. It sort of has this slow three-beat feel uh, in the first section, and then uh, after there's a faster four-beat uh, groove that develops. So it's an interesting contrast in uh, rhythm and groove. Uh, the rhythm beat also keeps the beat kind of stretching and uh, changing up under the solos. Um, and so it's kind of like a, a surfing kind of uh, thing as the soloist here, but Allure uh, handles that well. Uh, he navigates through these interesting chord changes here, and you'll see that he's a lyrical player. He also has a really nice warm tone on the instrument. Uh, he hits some fast chromatic lines, uh, gets up into the upper register for climax on his solo. Uh, and then uh, also, when they come back to the melody uh, and have kind of a, a vamp at the end, he has a little bit uh, more improv time with some warmer tones at the end. So uh, interesting rhythmic tune to start things out. Uh, track two, La Tortouche, yeah. the turtle. Uh, this one starts with a nice funky Rhodes vamp. Again, <laughs> it's kind of the signature not, of this not, album. Not very turtle-like, I just want no. to say. I don't know where they got that title from. Yeah. But... Um, okay. The melody is uh, doubled on the trumpet in the Rhodes 
um, with kind of little question and answer type phrases uh, that moves around uh, with a contrasting lyrical section. Uh, Lord Solo here has a lot of varied articulation, a mix of lines that build tension outside the chords, uh, along with prettier, more uh, major sounding melodic lines. Uh, Chevalier milks the funky distortion sound of the Rhodes here with fat heavy chords and funky bluesy rhythmic right hand figures in his solo. Uh, Zelnik keeps a good groove that's funky with punchy bass lines and uh, the drum fills by uh, Martin Charrier uh, are kind of decorative uh, and fill things out nicely. Uh, track three, Sun, Sun, Sun. Uh, again, Funky alternating chords uh, and groovy bass make a cool intro, intro for this one. Lowest trumpet melody is uh, rhythmic to fit in the groove with some lyrical sections uh, as well. Uh, they go around the melody twice. Uh, I like how he really navigates the chords in his solo here. Uh, he uses phrases that have a lot of intervals uh, in them as well. And he takes interesting chances in his solos. That's one thing I like. Uh, about his approach, uh, but he always finds kind of a satisfying resolution. Uh, to me, that's a mark of uh, an exciting soloist, uh, someone who, when they're improvising, creating lines at the moment, maybe paints themselves into a difficult place <laughs> with some mm. choices of notes, and then finds a neat way to uh, resolve those. So you say, oh, of course. Uh, yeah, uh, and so I, I feel like he's a player that um, finds excitement by challenging himself uh, with his uh, kind of uh, melodic development. Uh, Chevalier has some added funk with a delay on his solo that's really cool. Uh, it can get some extra kind of uh, rhythmic pauses and feels using that effect. Uh, he also has some cool outside figures and intricate rhythms in his solo. Uh, after they repeat the melody, they vamp off on uh, alternating riff uh, at the end to give the drums a bit of a spot uh, before they close things out. Track four is Ballad for N. And uh, here we get some of the vocalizations of Camille Bartol uh, that start uh, on the melody uh, over just the bass for this kind of slow waltzing ballad tune. Uh, then Allure doubles up uh, the melody uh, when they repeat it, and the roads and drums come in. Uh, Bertolt has a vocalization solo uh, that sounds very mysterious and more instrumental uh, than vocal in quality. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Allure has a relaxed and lyrical trumpet solo uh, before joining with uh, Bertolt again for the melody. So it's very pretty and spacious. Uh, and they're doing a lot of this in unison, uh, which takes a nice sense of pitch and skill to get uh, voice and trumpet to be uh, in tune as well as they are here. So a lot of control uh, to play this pretty number. Track five is Tobo. This is uh, another Rhodes chord intro uh, for another tune with a straight beat. Uh, Allure plays the simple kind of intervallic melody. Uh, when he comes in on his solo, it's bluesy with heart attacks, uh, but he contrasts it with a return to the sweeter melody, and he continues with lighter phrases before pushing it harder and getting outside the chords for a bit of uh, adventure. Uh, the sections alternate again, 
and uh, he matches the mood, uh, either soft or intense. Chevalier's solo is funky, also harmonically cool with rising modulating lines in it. Uh, all this over good bass grooves uh, and nice cymbal work uh, on the drums under here. So very interesting tune. Uh, let's see, what do we have here? How's your French? Il y a trois ans, which means three years ago. Three years ago. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, lilting melody. This one's got a 6-8 beat feel to it. Uh, Allure shows off a nice lyrical sense on this melody. Uh, Chevalier's solo uh, comes first, and he uses that cool delay effect again. Uh, this one's filled with creative rhythmic figures uh, that really build to a climax. Uh, Allure keeps it warm in the lower register to start on his solo. He works up to some flurrying lines and interesting ideas that work through the chords, and then he ties it back uh, into the melody uh, going to the end of the tune. Uh, seven, Rue Visconti. It's a mysterious slow bass intro. Uh, Allure joins in over the bass uh, with the pretty melody. Cymbals swell in lightly and the piano adds some chords. Uh, Chevalier plays a delicate solo, focusing on articulation uh, with some fanciful runs. And Allure's solo is warm with lyrical and some staccato phrases for variety. This is a very classy, uh, well-played ballad. Uh, and track eight, finishing things up, is called Traffic. Uh, this one starts with a kind of tentative rubato intro melody that emphasizes chromatic tension between a G and A flat uh, tones. Uh, things change up into a section uh, with some complex rhythms, fast trumpet figures, before they return to the first figure. Uh, Allure starts his solo softly, but he builds it up with chromatic figures and rhythms. Uh, Chevalier is funky and harmonically free on his solo here um, and makes this piece kind of exciting. Uh, so that closes it out. Uh, I thought it's a nice collection of original tunes. It's mostly straight beat and funky in concept, which uh, fits uh, the Rhodes grooves perfectly. Uh, Allure's playing is a good mix of both uh, funky trumpet playing and lyrical lines. And uh, Chevalion shows off a great concept for using the sound of the roads uh, creatively in this material. And uh, bass and drum work is tight and also inspiring uh, to the solos. So uh, overall, everything fits together nicely. And I thought uh, kind of exciting uh, young and up-and-coming up trumpet player. Yeah, I thought so too. I, mean, I think... Well, for you, you probably wanted to hear the trumpet player, but for me, Chivayon was the uh, the the main draw. But I was the Allure's um, bright sound really drew me in. I really liked his uh, his tone throughout, and the funkiness of this album also kind of got me. I like anything funky, really. Yeah. Um, uh, Chivayon makes the distorted roads sound appealing. Um, I had to kind of accept that that was going to be the whole album at first because right, I liked right. I liked the other album that he did so much and for you know that when it came out you know that we did it last year that I wanted to hear more of him doing that and you don't get a chance to hear that here but you know, of course we'll hear more from him in the future um i th the one let me see yeah this this album held my interest throughout i liked it um like with the um which one was it from last week the pedro martinez who was i can't remember oh, i can't remember anyway the tracks were all like taut and pretty short, and I feel like the ensemble could have stretched out more. Right, right. Like they were really uh, 
sort of it felt like the ideas could have really expanded out and uh i guess they had like a limit as to how much they were gonna yeah everything solo for the recording is under six minutes there's nothing that's really extended yeah. so yeah but the soloing is really really good i'm really happy to hear like right. a, a 12 minute track or something like that yeah. and that sounded like that would have been the case here yeah anyway we'll look forward to hearing more from allure i, I like yeah. his playing uh it's adventurous but also he, he shows uh enough restraint he holds back so you want to constantly hear more from him and he uses a lot of space uh, in his solo lines uh, so he's a mature concept uh, yeah those already, French have a those French have an interesting musical take on uh, yeah the higher forms classical and jazz you know for sure hmm. alright we're going to stay in Europe and uh, go over to uh, the Netherlands oh. for the next one uh, with the I thought a fabulous trumpet player uh, Lut van der Lee. Okay. Uh, the Lut van der Lee Quartet uh, with his new release called uh, Both Sides. And this is on A Records. Uh, so, van der Lee was born in uh, Bachum, Netherlands, uh, 1968. So, he's about in our age bracket. Um, he graduated from uh, Hilversum Conservatory. Uh, and then he went and also studied in uh, the U.S. Uh, with uh, Brian Lynch, Wynton Marsalis, and uh, one of my favorite trumpet players, Jim Rotundi. Uh, oh. So uh, also he got some coaching from uh, Bobby Shue, oh, one of my the great trumpet players. Uh, and uh, he's uh, performed in a lot of uh, groups internationally with big names, uh, Lee Thornburn, Roy Hargrove, Benny Golson, uh, and uh, tons of others, Lee Konitz, Vincent Herring, uh, Diego Arcola, another uh, trumpet player we heard. Uh, so he's uh, got an impressive resume internationally, and uh, here he is uh, with this recording, both sides, I guess, showing off uh, kind of a more lyrical nature and a harder side of his playing. Uh, so on this recording, uh, Vanderlee's on trumpet and flugelhorn. The rest of the uh, musicians on bass, Johan Plump, drums. <laughs> Some good names in this ensemble. Yeah. Just Kesselar, uh, mm. Martin Vink, uh, two, drum, two drummers, uh, guitar, Jesse Van Ruler, piano, Robert Jan, I guess this is, uh, let's see, Robert Jan Vermeulen. Hmm. Tenor sax, there's two players, Dave Barlow and, uh, let's see if we can, <laughs> this one's a little tough, yeah. Sored Dickwizen. There you go. All right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, got some vocals here. That. Vocals here too, Faye Klassen. And uh, actually, thanks to Faye, uh, there's not a lot of uh, album notes uh, available online. Uh, so, Lute, you might put these up on your website, especially when you've got uh, multiple sax players and multiple drummers. Right. <laughs> Actually, it's uh, hard to know who's yeah, who. Uh, Faye on her website has uh, some reflections on this recording, and she points out, so I picked up some extra material. But I'm oh, going to cool. give you both one correction on a tune that oh. uh, is uh, not attributed correctly. We've actually talked about it on the podcast before uh, but we'll get there oh. 
when we go I'm guessing along. another one of these Japanese composers. Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, same one, yeah. Uh, anyway, we, we start... Oh, uh, Body and Soul. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay. No, not that one. Nope. No, no. Uh, Which one is it? Uh, the last tune. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, so we start with the, uh, the oh. title track, Both Sides. Uh, it's a not-too-slow ballad, uh, and... Uh, Eventually starts right out with the melody that features some relaxed, repeated notes and helps set the laid-back mood. He has a really big, warm sound. Uh, nice little touch of vibrato in his playing. Uh, and uh, the so his solo after the melody is very melodic as well. Uh, lots of pauses between phrases. Uh, gives you time to digest his beautiful melodic ideas. Uh, I like how he leaves unresolved phrases hanging. Uh, to give you expectations of what's next. Uh, he's composing nice ideas in his solo. Uh, Jan Vermeulen has a tasty piano solo as well. Pfer uh, Vanderly comes back with some doodles into the melody again, and he finishes with a nice trumpet flourish. Uh, so we're off to a tasty start. Uh, track two, Bugali. Uh, this is a, uh, I guess it's original tune, but it's very much in the style of Lee Morgan uh, Blue Note funky post-bop tunes uh, from all of those albums like Sidewinder and like that back in the 60s, uh, featuring bluesy and snaking horn lines. Uh, first out of the gate is a bluesy tenor sax solo. Uh, I believe this is by Dave Barlow. It's got lots of double-time phrases through it, and he gets a lot of time to stretch out on it. There's a nice change of groove in the rhythm section uh, as a transition uh, interlude to Vanderlee's solo. It gets back to the funky beat, and uh, Vanderlee shows he's absorbed uh, Lee Morgan's spirit with lots of sassy half-valve notes and high-note uh, bravura phrases. Uh, there's another little transition back uh, to the fun melody. Uh, this one will put you in a good mood. Uh, very funky uh, Blue Note 60s type stuff here. Uh, track three, uh, Honesty. Uh, not the Billy Joel's <laughs> tune. <laughs> I was but, wondering myself. I yeah. saw that name. I was like, this is sounding like Billy Joel. Original. Uh, a ballad that starts tune. with uh, flugelhorn over guitar and bass. Uh, drums sit out on this tune, totally. Uh, Vanerly is warm and fluffy on the pretty melody that has a lot of nice interplay with the guitar. Uh, a breathy tenor by... Uh, Here's this guy's name. That's really hard. <laughs> Sword Dickerson. <laughs> Sorry. Go for it, man. Yeah. I can't help you here. I really have with that. <laughs> uh, joins in. Uh, I got this from uh, the vocalist's uh, website because uh, otherwise I wouldn't know who's playing tenor. Uh, but anyway, the tenor comes in to take over the melody. Evanderly uh, comes back for a solo. It's melodic and lyrical, even when he blows through his fast lines. And then the tenor comes back for a more relaxed solo punctuated with a few nicely accented phrases. Vanderlee comes back to tie it up into the melody once more and takes a lovely short cadenza before the final note. Um, really nice ballad playing on this album. Uh, four, Tippin' Brown. It's a fast swinging hard bop tune with challenging unison horn line that picks up into the tune and uh, has some stop time sections. Uh, the horns get a breather with the piano solo up first. They repeat part of the melody, and then uh, Vanderly is up. He shows off his speedy bop chops here, and also gets some high-energy phrases into the upper register. Uh, the trumpet and piano then trade off uh, before getting back to the melody. There's no sax solo on this one. Uh, interestingly, 
on uh, Faye Clausen's website. It says the tenor sax is played by uh, Jan Menu, who's not listed on the other ones. So I don't know if he's just a guest for the melody or if she's wrong. Anyway, uh, <laughs> maybe if you have the CD, you can figure it out. Uh, yeah. uh, number five is I Need You. Uh, this is uh, uh, Venerly's original tune, and he also wrote the lyrics for this song, uh, too. Uh, it's another pretty valid. Uh, Venderly comes in on the flugelhorn on the intro with some vocalizations uh, by Faye Klassen to start out before she gets to the lyrics. Uh, she continues on with more vocalizations after the verse. Uh, Venderly comes in under her and continues on for a smooth solo. Uh, next is a piano solo by Jan Vermeulen. Uh, and there's nice drum work. Uh, underneath everything here, uh, dividing up the beat and making tasty fills. Uh, Klassen comes back for the final verse, and there's some nice interplay and harmonization between her and uh, Vanderlee. Uh, again, another classy um, ballad tune, and it's cool that he uh, writes lyrics for his tunes too, so uh, that's nice. Uh, track six, Body and Soul, the old jazz standard, uh, this is, uh, you know, a tune uh, that he's probably inspired by Freddie Hubbard's version. As most, I, I can hear a lot of Freddie Hubbard uh, and Lee Morgan in his trumpet style. Um, and this one I like. Uh, he starts out with just flugelhorn and guitar. Uh, and Ruler keeps a nice swing bounce to his accompaniment that pushes the tune along, so it doesn't bog down into ballad territory here. Vanderly plays melodically and and, uh, and real beautiful things. Uh, and Van Ruler takes a solo himself uh, while keeping the harmony going uh, along underneath and also gets some nice tasty double stops on the guitar. Uh, he's a really tasty guitarist. Uh, Vanderly comes back for the melody and a nice gentle cadenza. Uh, this tune, uh, just uh, this guitar and flugelhorn, it's like a warm Carmel Sunday or something. You know, it's all... <laughs> Yeah, really warm and tasty. Um, seven, uh, Secret Prayers. Uh, this one, uh, the notes that uh, it was inspired by uh, Lee Morgan's Search for the New Land, which is a really cool album and tune uh, from his catalog. Uh, the solo trumpet intro comes in uh, until drums, uh, bass, and guitar join in on the rubato phrases. Uh, I think this is uh, a different drummer, uh, Martin Fink is on this one. Uh, the tune uh, takes off into a loping bluesy swing for just a bit before it returns to the rubato intro idea. Then it launches into a much faster section. Uh, Vanderly blows out some fast screaming phrases. It settles back once more. There's a pause. A funky bass riff gets things going once more on a new even beat groove. Uh, Vanderly solos over the new groove. Uh, he uses some half-valving, fluttering, and harmonic exploration with some uh, Freddie Hubbard-like high-register intense phrases. Uh, the groove changes up to fast swing and settles again before they get back to the funky uh, bass resetting uh, for a guitar solo, where Van Ruler shows off some fast chops. Uh, once more, back to the melody section, uh, where... Uh, Vanderly gets some uh, screaming phrases in on the race to the end. So <laughs> lots of rhythmic changes in this tune. Mm. Uh, keeps you on your toes. Uh, track eight, There Goes My Heart. 
uh, Faye Clausen is back again on this tune. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, very famous song that uh, Nat King Cole sang, and also later was a hit by a singer named Joni James, uh, both in valid ballad versions. But here, it's a speedy swing uh, version. Uh, Vanderlee has his harmon mute in for some doodles uh, with the sax under Klassen's lyrics. Uh, Dave Barlow on tenor sax is up for a solo right away after the verse over the bouncy bass and guitar chords. And Vanderlee is next uh, swinging along with really acrobatic phrases and some false fingering fun on this solo. Uh, Van Ruler gets some uh, fast swinging solo as well uh, before Clausen returns for the final verse. So <laughs> this album has enough ballads on it. So here they take a ballad and they do it in a kind of fast swinging way that's freshening it up. Uh, track nine, uh, Johannes Waltz. Uh, this is written by the German piano player uh, Frank Wunsch. Uh, extended rubato piano intro here. Some very pretty runs that gets joined by the bass and drums to a medium waltz. Uh, Vanderlee blows the pretty melody on flugelhorn. Tenor joins in on the second section, an octave lower. Uh, Johann Plomp gets his first bass solo of the album, and it's thick and melodic. And Vanderlee has a great solo here. Starts off soft and mellow, but works up in intensity with some topsy-turvy phrases that end with a nice hanging phrase uh, that hands things off to the tenor sax. And uh, then Vanderlee and the tenor take out the melody to end the tune. And uh, we're going to end things up with track 10, Desert Moonlight. Um, and now we heard this tune back on uh, Louis Hay's Crisis in episode now, 45. I want to ask you about this. Uh, yeah. The way they've written it here is Desert Moonlight. Is that mm. the actual title? or uh, No, it's Desert. It is uh, so Desert. It's, yeah, it's, so it's, it's just misspelled. Misspelled here, yeah, I believe. I see. No, because um, it's on Deezer and it's on like the internet right. like this yeah, too. I think it's just misspelled. Um, okay. But... Uh, the, as was credited, I believe, on the Louis Hayes uh, and originally to uh, Lee Morgan, who recorded this on uh, his famous album from 1965, Rump Roller. And uh, Clausen's site refers to it as one of his best compositions, but he didn't write this tune. Uh, Wait, he actually said he it was one of his best compositions and he didn't write it? No, no. God. She said it was one of uh, Lee Morgan's oh, best compositions. And I believe... I I, you know, uh, it was just listed as his composition on that original recording. So most people believe that it was a Lee Morgan composition. But play this to any Japanese and right away, they're going to tell you, oh, Tsuki no Sabaku. Uh, okay. Which is a Japanese tune. Uh, I believe this goes back to like the 1930s or so. I, I mentioned the exact history of it on the previous episode we did, but it's written by uh, well, on composers. On previous episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, mm. Suguru Sasaki, uh, who wrote this tune, and it became sort of, um, not like a folk song, but a, a widespread song in the culture that all children came to know. And uh, Tsuki no Sabaku actually would mean um, the the desert moon, or like the moon on the desert, not desert moonlight. So yeah. it's a little bit different meaning. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you can find the original, um, you know, recordings of of this song on YouTube and whatnot. I mean, Japanese versions uh, to prove it to yourself. Uh, so, so I think. What would, you, what would you type in on YouTube to hear it? Tsuki no sabaku. Tsuki no sabaku. T s u k i n o s a b a k u. Okay. Uh, you Try can also look it up in. Uh, 
Wikipedia or anywhere uh, to find yeah. it out. Um, anyway, uh, Lee Morgan took a melody that he heard somewhere, maybe when he was on tour in Japan or something, and uh, made it into a jazz version. Um, here uh, with uh, Vander Lee, it starts with uh, just a tenor and trumpet uh, for uh, an intro of the melody. It gets passed off to guitar for an interlude. Uh, they play through the whole melody, which works up to a driving swing in the middle. Uh, things uh, idle over the bass while Vanderlee starts his solo with some trilling, and the rhythm forms up again and then drives ahead over the walking bass. Uh, Vanderlee half valve squeezes out some notes and keeps the trills going along through his lines. He works into a rhythmic idea that gets picked up by other players. Uh, the guitar gets a solo and a relaxed swinging tenor sax solo here too. Uh, Vanderlee joins in on a repeated riff at the end of the sax solo that starts some solo time for the drums segueing back to the melody. And uh, that ends out this recording. Uh, so I have to say Vanderlee is a fabulous trumpet player. He has great chops, uh, excellent taste uh, in his uh, solo playing. A very warm, pleasing sound uh, on ballads and uh, sort of this different uh, personality and tonality on flugelhorn. He can get uh, really screaming on trumpet and forceful when he wants to. Uh, this recording has got a lot of variety in the material, especially the ballad numbers and his flugelhorn playing are lovely. So I think he's a trumpet player that should be more widely heard and I'd put him right up in the top of uh, you know uh, players out there today yeah each of the tracks on this album are highly involved there's a lot of activity mm. going on in all of them I wrote like <laughs> extremely long notes for each one I, just, oh, cool. I just was picking out all these little details that uh, that that I was hearing so it, it's it's sort of um, yeah there, there's a lot for the ear on this yeah. album I think so I would uh, if, you, if you're that kind of person who really likes this um Ear, ear buffet of sounds. <laughs> there's, mm. certain, there's certainly a lot of that. Um, the drums, it's kind of interesting. He gets a few solos, but he doesn't really overpower um, no, no, the listener. Finesse, and I'm wondering if he's drummer. just back in the mix or something, because I think he would uh, mm. normally be louder if he played the way he did, like if I was in a, right. a club. But otherwise, yeah, I thought this was um, really interesting. Really, again, a lot of really interesting detail for me. So my that that whole the pleasure centers were hit in a lot of different places okay. hmm. yeah it's uh melodically satisfying and i think uh any trumpet player is listening you're going to appreciate uh his trumpet ability and concept uh he's a really good uh trumpet player uh with technique and uh, style uh, so check it out yeah and finally something a little bit different uh, oh yeah, this was different already. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got a Canadian-born uh, trumpet player who I understood spent a lot of time in California or in the San Francisco area before coming to Brooklyn. Oh, <laughs> but we're not going to we're not using New York accents anymore. My hometown, no more yeah. New York accents. Yeah, yeah. My no my more. brother insulted us, so we're not just going to give you the pleasure yeah. of hearing our New York so accents there. anymore. So he moved to Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn in uh, 2019, uh, making it into uh, the New York scene. And he's gotten some uh, recognition in Downbeat magazine uh, called a Resourceful Improviser who writes vivid episodic themes and uh, made the list of uh, 25 trumpeters for the future. 
Uh, speaking of, Darren Johnston uh, and his latest release, uh, Life in Time on Origin Records. And I have to say, this also has a very unusual album cover. I, oh, I'm trying to think of what it was now. <laughs> uh, it's a young boy. Oh, right. Okay. Under the bleachers this. with a sort of a, a painted face makeup with an yeah. angry expression holding a toy gun. <laughs> so check it out. I don't, I don't know if that's uh, Johnston when he was a youngster um, yeah. or what it refers to, but it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Uh, the previous... not, not completely out of line with what you're going to hear, by the way. So, mm. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, so this album uh, I picked up because it's uh, something interesting. Uh, Johnston on trumpet, uh, Jeff Bradfield on tenor and soprano saxes, also bass clarinet. Uh, which whenever I see bass clarinet, I'm yeah, me too. Listen. Uh, and Clark- I hear. I- and he plays satisfyingly. We'll get to it when yeah, he, yeah. it happens. But he plays satisfying in the low range of yeah. the bass clarinet, complete with um, reed honks at, yeah. the, at the bottom. And I love that. Clark Summers on bass, mm. Dana Hall on drums, and no one on piano and no one on guitar. So <laughs> that's the point here. Uh, we've got a quartet with no... Uh, harmony instrument. Uh, of course, this is nothing new. Uh, going back, you know, Sonny Rollins did uh, a lot of uh, kind of playing without piano, uh, and you had some uh, cool jazz groups, um, Jerry Mulligan, uh, Chet Baker, uh, playing without uh, uh, piano or guitar chord instrument. Uh, so that always opens up uh, a lot of harmonic freedom uh, here. So I was expecting... Uh, a kind of free type of inst- improvising, and that is here. But uh, what intrigued me and made me choose this was I was surprised at the level of excellent compositions uh, and uh, also the use of the sparse instrumentation for bigger effects of sound in the arrangement uh, than you know would be implied by just what's here. Uh, and so I, the more I listen to this recording, the more it grows on me. Uh, I think that's going to be the case with me, too. There, there's yeah. a lot of variety in the uh, approaches to each track, too. Yeah. Um, it's it's a very... Well, I, sh- I should talk about this at the end, but it's a very... It was more of an intellectual album, I think. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So they, they're doing a lot with this uh, sparse instrumentation and, and using um, the uh, possibilities of interplay uh to bring out the most of what's going on. Uh, And there's a lot of variety in the compositions. Uh, So let's get into it. Uh, Track one, uh, Asherah. This is a minor slinking melody in uh, 5-4 time. Uh, Johnston starts it out alone over just the bass. Uh, The second time around, sax and drums come in, and then the horns split into differently arranged lines with some unison parts. Uh, Johnston plays a solo that leaves lots of expectant spaces in it, and he hints at enough of the chords that if you've uh, listened to what he's doing and the bass, your brain will fill in uh, what the rest of the harmonic ideas are. Uh, So just this outline uh, gives you enough direction 
of uh, the harmonic movement of the music. Uh, Bradfield solos as well, uh, with more rapid lines on the tenor sax, and then Summers has some extended time to work on the bass. The horns come in for some backing lines twice before coming back together to finish up with the melody. That's one of the things I liked about this album. Uh, there's no harmony instrument, so sometimes here, you know, behind the bass, you could just let the bass doodle on on his own, but they've got some, you know, uh, composed, organized backing harmonic lines with the uh, horns to back that. I thought it's a nice touch uh, of arranging. Uh, track two, Little Goldfish. Uh, this one has a soprano sax and a plunger muted trumpet. Uh, Johnson likes to use a plunger, uh, which is cool. Uh, maybe he's making a comeback with some modern players again. Uh, and this uh, combination has some unique lines uh, with some unison parts on the tricky, syncopated, quirky melody uh, over staggered bass and drum hits. Uh, Bradfield solos first on soprano over the changing beat of the bass and drums. It's loose, but it hangs uh, together smartly somehow. Uh, Johnston solos next, and Bradfield adds backing lines. Uh, and then uh, Johnston gets some flurrying ideas mixed in among bright major uh, melodic ideas. The horns trade off sections with the drums before heading out uh, with the quirky melody again. Track three. Whole, I want to oh, just yeah, mention this whole, this whole track has kind of an odd sound to it. There's something kind of, I, yeah. I said, old-timey about it. Yeah. Just, it's Isn't not it? just the rhythm. It's the whole... Yeah. The entire picture that you get. Um, yeah. Even the, the snare drum on the, 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 the drums, it kind of has this kind of odd blap sound like the yeah. like the uh, the strings are kind of loosened on the bottom or something, but it doesn't even sound like that. I don't know how he got that sound. You're right. You're right. Old timey yeah. or something yeah. kind of nostalgic, but There's through a different lens. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, I got that feeling too. Yeah. Uh, track three is Intention and Commitment. Uh, this is a starts with a loping six eight bass ostinato line, um, bass clarinet, and more plunger muted trumpet uh, bring in the mysterious minor melody. Uh, the beat changes up in the middle section over bass triplet figures before returning uh, to the ostinato kind of feel. Uh, Bradfield solos uh, first on the bass clarinet. He gets down low to some really resonant notes. Uh, between other fluid melodic phrases. Uh, Hall plays lots of textured rhythms uh, behind it. Uh, Johnson uses the plunger for his solo, getting some uh, real plunged uh, trill effects and cries <laughs> here. There's <laughs> a problem with his plumbing. Uh, he gets all the pipes cleaned out. No um, worries there. Yeah. yeah. And Bradfield backs uh, with some rhythmic figures uh, that Johnston incorporates into his solo so they're really listening to each other and having good interplay and then the theme slinks back in uh, to finish it up but uh yeah i like to hear that bass clarinet yeah uh, me too down there yeah. yeah um for life and time the title track uh tenor and trumpet uh trade lines together with the drum phrases to get started and then we're off for a drum solo uh, with a few bass hits mixed in with it. Uh, Johnston comes back for a solo, and the drums drop out for a bit before joining back in. Uh, the beat shifts around for a while 
uh, before a driving swing develops with a hard walking bass line. Uh, Bradfield's solo is next, and Summers switches up the bass in sections from the fast walk uh, and offbeat halftime patterns. Uh, the horns come back in together to trade with the drums again, uh, playing around the minor melody, and it ends up on a Picardy third, which is kind of cool. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting, like I said, there's a lot of interesting yeah. elements on this album. I, I made a comment here. I just want to kind of mention now, after track three, we just talked about track four. Right. But that's a seven-minute long track, and I said that it seemed to go on for a longer time, but not because I was uninterested or bored by uh-huh. it. You know, I was like, I wasn't like, when is this going to end? But it was more because all the elements are so unique, and you're just kind of wondering where it's going to go next, and it just seems to sort of stretch out more, and you realize it's only right. seven minutes long. I'm thinking, oh, has this been going on for like 12 minutes already? What's going on? Yeah. It was an odd sensation for me. I know I've rarely I don't think I've ever had that uh huh. experience listening to music before. Something seeming longer than it really is and not because it was boring for some other reason. Right. You know? That's <laughs> because it was interesting. I was kinda like intrigued, you know, it, was, it just seemed to stretch time for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot of spontaneity and creativity uh inside of what they've mapped out in these tunes, I think. Yeah. Uh, the next tune is uh, track five, Lost and Found. Uh, this one clocks in over eight minutes uh, yeah. here. Uh, it's a bass intro that leads into a lyrical rubato minor uh, horn lines over drum fills and the bass beat. Uh, the bass picks it up again uh, with a solo over light but busy drum work. Johnson comes in on a slower tempo with a somber-themed solo that develops some rhythmic interplay with the bass as the drums kind of swell underneath that. And then Johnson works in some open interval phrases into the upper register before ending his solo. The bass and drums pause as Bradfield starts his solo on sax and the bass then adding kind of rumbling figures under the soft phrases. And Bradfield gets out some sax overtones uh, among his lines. Uh, The horns come back for the theme uh, with room for some drum rumbling, swelling underneath, and punctuated bass. Uh, the next track, Six Shade. This has a fast, skittish horn lines uh, in unison that start out. Uh, the bass changes up the beat by alternating between fast walking and then a Spanish-like alternating chord ostinato uh, kind of uh, pattern. Uh, Johnson solos first, navigating the changing beat and playing against the rhythm with phrases and repeated notes. Uh, Bradford's more lyrical on his solo on tenor sax here, and Summers ups for uh, more spaced out uh, bass notes uh, before uh, picking up the speed again. Uh, The horns trade solo phrases with Hall on drums before returning to the nervous theme that winds down at the end. Um, Yeah, kind of interesting influences in this one. Uh, Track seven. Uh, Guimarães? I guess. It's a city in Portugal or a region, okay. I think. Guimarães. Uh, yeah. Uh, this has pretty harmonized rubato ballad theme on tenor and trumpet. Bass and cymbals fill out the ends of phrases. There aren't any individual solo sections here, but the horns kind of add improvised lines together as they work uh through the ebbing and flowing phrases to the end. Uh, Different kind of approach, but working together uh, straight through the tune. 
uh, one of the shorter tunes here, just uh, about four and a half minutes. Uh, but uh, I, I like the kind of uh, this ebb and flow, kind of like a breath, breathing and holding and then exhaling uh, through it. Uh, track eight, two words that don't seem to go together. Locomotive sunflower. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh, here we're back mm. to the nice combination of bass clarinet and plunger muted trumpet uh, on this kind of comical melody that alternates uh, fast figures and then longer squeezed notes in the case of the plunger. Uh, there's a bass solo first with the horns playing cool harmonized backing figures. Uh, another thing I was... Uh, example of what I was mentioning about nice arrangements. Uh, Bradfield solos on bass clarinet, uh, swinging his phrases and mixing in some uh, tonguing cross rhythm figures. Uh, Johnson again plunges his way through the solo with some squeezes and growls, uh, but outlines nice melodic phrases too. And Hall has some drum solo time over the bass before they repeat the lively, uh, fun melody. Track nine. A long title, The Color of the Wall of the Room That Reminded Me. <laughs> reminded mm -hmm. me of what? I don't know. Oh, yeah, they don't That's say. a long track. Uh, the, on this one, the bass starts a groove over a straight drum beat that has some uh, rim, rim clicks in it. Uh, the horns play the tricky syncopated minor melody line that has lots of interval jumps incorporated in it. Uh, sometimes uh, they're in unison, sometimes in harmony, working up to some rather dissonant uh, close intervals. Johnson starts his solo with bluesy minor phrases over the syncopated hits that the bass clarinet joins in on. Uh, he gets in a section of cool bluesy raspy lines before the time breaks and he finishes up passing on to Bradfield who gets some raspy charm in his own minor kind of modal lines. Uh, Johnson comes back in and then the horns work a syncopated minor vamp hits uh, kind of theme uh, as a backing for a drum solo from Hall. There's some rubato horn exchange and bass to finish out the tune uh, coming out of that vamp of the drums. And we finish it up 10, Song for Kamala. Uh, it's a softly swinging unison waltz melody on tenor and harmon muted trumpet uh, with harmonized ends of phrases. Uh, Hall adds only the slightest, the lightest and slightest of cymbal hits behind this. Uh, Bradfield solos gently over the bass. Uh, Hall gradually adds more brush textures and rhythms as Bradfield gets more accented in his solo. Johnson plays a harmon muted solo, hitting some nice triplet figures and double time lines along the way. And uh, Summers gets some space uh, for just his bass to play before they all return for the melody that ends on an unresolved interval. Um, so I found Way myself... an album. <laughs> yeah, it's strange. But I found myself drawn into this uh, pianoless kind of uh, space that they've created here. Johnson's crafted interesting, sometimes quirky tunes, but the instruments really make the most of the four musicians with the addition of soprano sax bass clarinet and his own uh, mutes uh, creating lots of tonal variety uh, within you know this ensemble and the group has really good interplay uh, a sense of freeness in time uh, so uh, the you know the drum and bass don't always keep a strict beat 
Uh, there's a lot of looseness in there, but it does lock in when it should. Uh, so it has that kind of breathing time quality to it. And as I said, uh, attention to uh, arrangements, uh, making a lot out of just four instruments. Uh, it's a little unusual, but intellectual, satisfying. And I got more out of it the second and third time I listened to it than the first time. Uh, it's one of those kind of recordings, maybe a bit of a challenge for some listeners, but uh, I think it's um, uh, well worth your time. And I think uh, Johnson has a lot going for him in uh not only as a trumpet player, but as a composer uh, and a maybe a concept uh, kind of creator with this ensemble. I, I think this album needs more than one listen to really be appreciated. So I would encourage listeners uh, just not to give up after one listen. It is, it is sort of intellectual. There's plenty. There are plenty of exciting moments on it. Uh, for me, most of them involving the bass clarinet, but that would be the case with me, <laughs> wouldn't it? I really just love the sound of that instrument and just any low reeds. I just love them so much. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, not what you expect. And like I said, it te it tends to expand time as you listen to it. As so many unexpected things happen, um, just just different, just odd combinations of instruments. You wonder what they're going to sound like together, yeah. or like the, the very last um, thing you hear an unre you know an unresolved uh, like false cadence yeah. at the end. It's just kind of just a false hangs. cadence, and then, the, then it just ends. Hangs there, and, yeah. and you're supposed to go off into your day, I guess, after that, or go to bed, or whatever, <laughs> whatever you're doing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely one for the head. Not not. Well, I don't want to say not for the heart, but it's, it does tend to appeal more to the head. Yeah. Um, yeah. So give it give it more than one listen. I would say yeah. if you're really into this sort of thing. I found it. Yeah. It's it was it was a bit of a challenge, but uh, I was warming to it myself after a second listen. Yeah. So there you go. There's your uh, trumpet variety. You've got some uh, funky Rhodes and French trumpet, uh, some dreamy Dutch, and uh, abstract that American. That, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> abstract yeah. American. Uh, abstract American. Yeah. So you should be all horned up at the end of this uh, All episode. horned up. All horned up. <laughs> After a sexy week last week, you're yeah. going to be all horned up. And, you should have uh, done this one first, then you'd be all yeah, horned up for the sexy week exactly. next week. And yeah. uh, what's coming up next week? Are we going to do Except keyboards? we got piano, right? So next week's going to be piano. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, I've got, um, I've got next week I've got Angela Hewitt's uh, last um, uh, recording of her Beethoven Sonatas cycle. Okay. And then I have two very unusual um, piano um, recitals coming, and I think they're, they're, I think that it'll really intrigue listeners. Okay. So you got one one very famous composer, and then a bunch of unknowns <laughs> after oh. that. I like I like uh, one of the, one of the comments I got for this podcast from uh, someone I work with was that um, yeah she was listening to it. She said I didn't know there were so many composers I didn't know. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> because I think a lot of people think you know I, I'm still getting the um, you know. People apologizing to me for liking Vivaldi, The Four Seasons, because they think it's not cool. You know, I like I like The Four Seasons, yeah, sure. but you know, it's just kind of it's you know, you just want to branch out a lot. I think you know, you don't want to stick to the uh, you want to know all the music by the the great composers, of course, but you really right. want to branch out from there and hear and know that this is still uh, a form that's being actively practiced, not only by musicians but by composers as well. Right, as we heard today, yeah. Okay, well, that's cool. I've got a 
long and growing list. Uh, there's more piano recordings in jazz than anything else. Right. And yeah. uh, I've got to bust some of these out there. So okay, I will, it's perfect um, then. Yeah. Yeah. I will um, pick out three, which I find most inspiring and add them. And so we'll feature the keyboards next week and uh, get ready for that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It certainly was a horn of plenty. A yeah. cornucopia, you might say. A hornucopia. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. We better end this before we make no, any No, we're not going to use that as the title. There's no, no way. No. No way. Not at all. All yeah. right. So this has been episode 53 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, get your sax fix, your trumpet tricks, and next week on to keyboards. Uh, every week six new releases in classical and jazz to listen to. As we said, please uh, take a moment. If you've made it to the end here, do subscribe or follow. Uh, if you haven't yet, uh, give us a ranking, write a review on whatever service you're on. Uh, we'd appreciate it. And uh, find us on Facebook if you'd like to leave a message or comment or write to us on email. Our address is Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll be back again next week for episode 54. So until then, keep listening. Mm-hmm.